0: Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and our awesome new theme song. I'm Rob Wiblin, head of research at 80,000 Hours. AI is once again all over the news, thanks to the launch of ChatGPT from OpenAI. ChatGPT has really taken chatbots to a new level in terms of the quality and the coherence of the answers that it can give to seemingly almost any sort of request People are still exploring and figuring out uh, what ChatGPT is able and and not able to do. It can write poetry, script TV shows, code programs, draft newspaper articles, simulate interviews between hosts and guests. It's not at the level of a person yet, uh, and it does have some particular weaknesses. But in many situations, it's getting close. The rate of improvement in these large language models over the last few years has been simply staggering in my opinion and uh, seems like many users agree because uh, watching Twitter, people have just been blown away. If you haven't seen it, you can try it for yourself at chat.openai.com though they are struggling to keep up with really high levels of demand so you might have to wait in a queue to get access. All that makes me very excited to be releasing this interview with Richard Ngo, who works at OpenAI and researches various issues to do with how very advanced AI can be developed, deployed, and integrated into society while avoiding all of the ways that that might go very wrong. We talk about large language models like ChatGPT, among other sorts of machine learning models, including how they work, uh, the capabilities they're gaining, whether or not they can really reason and understand things, and whether there's much to worry about. In the second half of the interview, we turn to Richard's new paper from August, titled The Alignment Problem from a Deep Learning Perspective. Note that this conversation was recorded a couple of weeks before ChatGPT was released, so I don't name it or bring it up specifically. I'm always worried these conversations about AI are going to get too technical and I'm going to struggle to follow, which uh, would be a red flag that maybe some listeners are also going to struggle to follow. But I was really happy listening back to this one that I think we both explained some very important ideas that most listeners won't have heard before, while remaining uh, still pretty easy to keep up with. Before that, one very important announcement. We have a lovely new theme song called La Vita è Bella. I hope I'm pronouncing that right uh, by Jazz Enough from their 2020 album Magic Carpet. I'm a big fan of Jazz Enough, so I hope you enjoy it and that one day it generates a Pavlovian response where you start salivating for in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems and what you can do to solve them every time you hear it. Their new album out this year is called Sundance, and of course you can go and find that anywhere you get music. Oh, and the runner-up option for our theme music was the track Coffee and Cigarettes, also from Jazz Enough. So go check it out and do email us if you think we've made a mistake uh, so that we can feel bad about our choice. All right, without further ado, I bring you Richard No. Today, I'm speaking with Richard Ngo. Richard grew up in Vietnam and New Zealand before moving to the UK to study computer science and philosophy at Oxford, and a masters in machine learning at Cambridge. He then became a research engineer on the artificial general intelligence safety team at DeepMind, then spent a year on a PhD in the philosophy of machine learning at Cambridge on the analogy between the development of artificial intelligence and the evolution of human intelligence. But in 2021, he dropped the PhD and moved on to research AI governance at OpenAI, the organization responsible for GPT-3 and DALI-2. Richard is a prolific writer on the risks created by rapid advances in machine learning and how to ameliorate them across published papers, the AI alignment forum, the effective altruism forum, and of course Twitter. His current goals are to understand the key patterns of the world, to help make the long term future of humanity amazing, and hopefully to stick around to enjoy it himself. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Richard.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Rob. I'm a big fan, really excited to be here.
0: Fantastic. I hope to talk about recent progress in the field and some things listeners should understand about how ML models actually work.
1: But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? So right now I'm splitting my time a few different ways. So I'm on the governance team at OpenAI and we're basically trying to figure out what the governance and regulation of advanced artificial intelligence might look like and in particular questions around, you know, how might we get cooperation on large scale, on a national scale and international scale to make sure that people don't build and deploy risky AI systems. And then I also spend a bunch of my time thinking about the alignment problem, um, you know, continuing work that I was doing at DeepMind and in particular trying to understand the problem better and then explain it to people in machine learning and elsewhere so we can build a better understanding of like what we actually need to do to try and fix it.
0: Yeah, so... Uh, I guess, looking over your CV, it seems like you've spent quite a bit of time doing technical ML work. But these days, you're at OpenAI, your, your title involves more focusing on, on governance. Uh, are you more doing technical or policy stuff these days? Or, or maybe are
1: you kind of at the interface of both of these things? Yeah, I'd say I'd split my time between them. I'm not doing a huge amount of coding these days. But I am thinking about uh, alignment questions from a technical perspective. And I think really the key thread going through here is just I've been trying to figure out where the biggest gaps in the field are and how I can fill them. And so originally, it felt like that was in, uh, you know, the technical domain. But then I realized that there was much less clarity about what the problem actually was, and um, how we understood these high level concepts than I expected. And so I shifted into focusing on that for a little while. And then it felt like, there was some stuff in AI governance that felt not very fleshed out, maybe pre-paradigmatic, and it felt like there was an opportunity for me to contribute there. So I'm really just trying to figure out what's the key missing step in humanity's plan for dealing with advanced AI. So yeah,
0: one one reason among a bunch of others that we're having this conversation right now is that AI is a super hot topic at the moment. Well, I guess mainly because it's been just super impressive and striking results recently with language models and image models and so on that have uh, really gotten uh, the public's attention on a a personal level how excited and or anxious do you feel uh, about all of this rapid progress that we've seen as someone who's actually working uh, really close to it all
1: yeah it does feel like the progress of the last couple years in particular has been very compelling and quite visceral for me just watching what's going on i think partly because you know the demos are so striking like the images the like poetry that GPT 3 creates things like that and then partly because it's just so hard to see what's coming right like people are really struggling to try and figure out what things can these language models not actually do like what benchmarks can we design what tasks can we give them that are not just going to fall in like a year or maybe a year and a half and so that feels like it feels like the whole field isn't in a state of suspense in some ways like it's just really hard to know what's coming and it might just often be the things that we totally don't expect, like AI art, for example. Yeah, I guess there's two things going on here. One is just that the capabilities are ahead of where people
0: forecast them to be. And they're also ahead of where they forecast it to be in a kind of strange direction that the progress is occurring on the ability to do tasks that people didn't really anticipate would be the first things that AI would be able to do. And so I guess it's just massively blown open our credences or expectations about what what might be possible, what might be possible next. Because it seems like we don't have a very good intuitive grasp of which things ML is is able to improve at really rapidly and which ones it's not.
1: Right. And I think I often hear this argument that says something like, oh, look, AI is not going to be dangerous at all. It can't even, you know, load a dishwasher. It can't even, uh, you know, uh, fold laundry or something like that. And I think that actually it turns out that a lot of really advanced and sophisticated capabilities including you know some kinds of reasoning uh like advanced language capabilities can actually just come and like coding as well actually can come significantly before a bunch of other capabilities that are more closely related to you know physical real world tasks so i do think there's pretty open question as to you know what the ordering of all these different tasks are but we really just can't rule out a bunch of like pretty vital and impressive and dangerous capabilities coming even earlier than, you know, things that seem much more prosaic or much more mundane. Yeah, it is. Uh, I
0: think that this is a long-standing paradox, right? That uh, I think, Moravec's paradox, that the, the things that we think right. of as being really difficult, AI finds easy, and the things that we think of as really easy, uh, AI often, often finds... Um, Uh, really, really difficult, which I suppose means that it could be that loading the dishwasher is kind of the last piece, (laughs) the last thing that falls into place uh, for for AI to kind of be able to compete with, you know, human staff on many different domains. I guess in, in this conversation, we're going to be focusing quite a lot on the downside risks because... If we can avoid all the downside risks, then hopefully eventually we'll get to to harvest all of the all the gains from from AI uh, at some point before too long. Anyway, but uh, yeah, if let's let, let's take a moment to to, to appreciate all, all the great upside. It thinks it really well. Is is there a benefit that you're uh, really looking forward to personally from from all of these scientific advances?
1: So one thing that I'm pretty excited about is it feels like a lot of fields of science have hit a point where it's just really hard for humans to understand what's actually going on like on an intuitive level like protein folding for example humans just can't visualize these types of things or uh you know some domains of mathematics where it's gotten so abstract and it's at such a high level of complexity that it really feels like we're approaching the limits of what human minds can actually do unaided and and so i'm just pretty excited about having systems that can hold much more in their heads that can like really you know Think about, you know, advanced mathematics, for example, in the same way that humans think about like shapes and objects around them in this just like very intuitive sense. Mm. And yeah, like the the types of progress that we we can get from that feel pretty exciting. Just like a broader understanding of more complex systems, uh, you know, like, whether that's bodies or economies or minds or societies than we currently have.
0: Yeah, yeah. I suppose we don't know what might result from that. It, it could be that there's all kinds of Amazing and perhaps obvious in retrospect, scientific advances that are just kind of very, kind of strangely blocked to the human brain because of its architecture, because of the particular kind of spatial reasoning that we're good at, and the potential spatial reasoning that we're bad at, and kind of you know how, how, how small our short-term memory mm-hmm. is, and, and things like that. And perhaps yeah, I, I suppose. Well, this is also a slightly concerning thing that, <laughs> that we don't know what what advances might come quite rapidly uh, once 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 ML models can kind of do that conceptual reasoning and, and do that science for themselves. Yeah, that seems exactly right. But on the other hand, it could be incredible. You mentioned just a minute ago that you're working on ways that uh governments maybe could could regulate the training of really big models. Yeah, wh- wh- why would that be desirable?
1: Broadly speaking, we don't want a situation in which uh, different actors, whether they're companies or countries, are trying to cut corners in developing increasingly advanced AI systems. And so it feels like we really want some kinds of cooperation here uh in order to make sure that everyone's, you know, uh sticking to the same standards and, you know, uh sharing best practices and like keeping each other informed about the types of, you know, examples of dangerous capabilities that they've seen or maybe anything that's particularly concerning and having the ability to sort of slow down when that's actually necessary. And I think, you know, a lot of ideas along these lines have been floating around in this space for a while, but the type of work that my team is trying to do is focusing a little more on making that concrete. Like, you know, suppose we had an agreement between uh, you know, different countries to, apply some kinds of standards to AI development what sort of enforcement mechanisms could we have what sort of um, you know metrics could we be looking at uh, and things like that and a lot of that work actually comes down to a bunch of technical details like um, you know what types of properties of large models or training setups can you automatically verify or what types of secure verification can you do on like the physical chip hardware. These are some of the questions that we're starting to look into now, which I'm pretty excited about more people looking into.
0: Yeah, I guess I suppose an analogy that comes to mind is with, I suppose this may be an unfortunate analogy, but to but to nuclear weapons is an example uh, right. where you've wanted to have all of these governance arrangements in order to... Prevents something that both like nuclear technology does like has large potential upsides and also large potential downsides and so you want to have uh, some rules about uh, who can access it and and on what terms. So it's, it's quite a bit more challenging in a way because computer chips are just used in so many different things and probably and the, and their cost is coming down in a way that uh, that nuclear technology is, is not. Where I suppose well, the, the peaceful uses of nuclear technology we've found tend to occur in like quite small particular isolated places that they're just not that numerous. It's it's easier to tell what, what's going on. Uh, do, you, do you actually think it's going to be very, very practical to limit people's access to compute in the, in the medium term?
1: I think if you're focusing on the largest training runs uh, that are done by, you know, the biggest ML research labs um, or the biggest projects, then I think there's some reasons to be optimistic here, especially when we're looking at the nuclear analogy. I think things have probably just gone significantly better than uh, one might have hoped. I mean, there were a lot of people who are, you know, uh, despairing pretty heavily uh, a few decades, like in the seventies, sixties, seventies, about the future of nuclear regulation and treaties and so on. But it seems like we've somehow muddled our way through. And so it may be the case that you know, even though there's no, you know, silver bullets for this, we can kind of just get a bunch of agreements on the table and muddle our way through in a roughly analogous way to how we've done in the nuclear case.
0: Yeah, I guess. In as much as the the models like training the the most oppressive models that uh we might be most concerned about just involves enormous amounts of compute, maybe that has a pretty high visibility or that you know the cost is pretty large it's kind of hard to do it under under the radar, so it does look a bit more like uh potentially working with uh, you know, <laughs> developing either nuclear weapons or developing uh, uh peaceful nuclear power It has quite a big footprint
1: yeah, that's right, like the sort of scales we're talking about are already pretty large for the biggest models, you know millions of dollars of compute spent training them, and then probably just going to become significantly bigger over time. The, I mean, the other factors are, of course, that there's a bunch of progress in terms of like more efficient training algorithms and, you know, compute advances that are going to lower that threshold for like how easily can you build a model with a given level of capabilities over time. Uh, So it feels like there are a bunch of open questions here, but at least the sort of baseline efforts to make sure that people don't use like very large amounts of compute, specifically doing dangerous things. It feels like there's some hope there.
0: Okay, before we uh, dive too deep into specific solutions or uh, anything like that, I think it's uh it'd be good to get on the table a bit of a um, basic grounding of, of what is the what is the problem that we're that we're worried about here, and why would we think that it's uh, potentially a really important global priority that the kinds of people who listen to this show should care about. You've written that when you started getting involved in the AI safety community, you found the thinking to be quite a bit perhaps more, more muddled, uh, maybe a bit less clear than, than what you had expected uh, going in. I think that, that, among other reasons, has prompted you to spend quite a bit of time writing up the underlying issues and trying to present the core ideas in a crisper and I suppose, hopefully hopefully more accurate way, um, including, I, I think, of that the AGI safety from first principles uh, report, the AGI safety fundamentals course, uh, and, and this more recent one that I think you're still working on called uh, Alignment 201. Is that right? That's right. Cool. So yeah. So let's go through some of these fundamental reasons why we should care about uh, about this whole topic in the first place. In my experience, everyone has a slightly different way that they think about the challenge we face safely developing and eventually at some point deploying advanced AI systems. Yeah. How would you personally describe the the overarching issue?
1: So in the classic paradigms of machine learning, you're you're training a system on some amount of data on a task and you get an output, which is, you know, a model that can perform that task. And maybe that task is playing StarCraft or maybe that task is playing Go or recognizing images or things like that. And over time, we're seeing increasingly general systems that can perform tasks that are less and less related to the specific training data they got so you know gpt2 and gpt3 were big steps towards more general systems that can like transfer experience from you know seeing a lot of text on the internet into performing novel tasks if you prompt them with a task that you just made up they can often perform it after being given a couple of examples and so this core premise of like generality that eventually we're going to have systems that can transfer you know from performing well on some tasks that they've been trained on to performing well on pretty novel tasks. I think that's the first Mm. key idea. And then the question is like, how are they going to do that? Right? Like what's, what's the mechanism by which you can take a system that hasn't been trained on a task, like running a company, being a CEO, or like has been trained a very small amount on that and actually Mm. starts to perform very well on it. And I think what seems very plausible to me is that the way they're going to do it is by reasoning about the world, having these like sophisticated models of the world and trying to figure out what actions are going to lead to which outcomes. So that's the second step. It's like reasoning about outcomes in the world. Uh, And then I think the third key idea is that when you're doing reasoning about uh, outcomes in the world, then the more powerful that reasoning is, the more you want to make sure that the outcomes that it's aimed towards are just very specifically what we want. Like if you have a system that's mostly just doing, mostly just copying the things that it's already seen or mostly just, you know, mimicking the data that has been given, then, you know, we're we're not so fussed about like specifically how it's doing that because it's going to stay roughly within the bounds of what we expect. But if you've got a system that's like coming up with totally new strategies, that's reasoning its way through, oh, like I want to achieve this long-term outcome so I can like take these intermediate steps, like, accumulate some money, use that money to like pay some people to do this task and just generating pretty uh, novel and unusual plans for performing those tasks. Then you want to make sure that the outcome that it's actually aiming for is very specifically what we want. Otherwise, those plans might include things like deception, manipulating humans, uh, harming humans, things like that.
0: Yeah. So I guess the the basic idea is that it would be very natural for these models as they become more and more sophisticated. And we try to find ways to make them capable of doing more and more things and more and more valuable things, that they would start to have this very general reasoning and planning capacity um, right. at, you know, at the level of, of humans and potentially beyond that, more at the level of what whole organizations are capable of, or perhaps, you know, beyond the planning and strategizing capability that uh, that 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 we presently have at all. Um, and I suppose at the point where a system like this is, is is capable of coming up with entire you know thinking of ways of achieving its goals that are quite different than what we might have expected or quite different than what we might have have wanted. Then it becomes quite important that we have specified the goal uh, correctly so that it doesn't end up using means that are uh, that are very different than than, the, than
1: what we had intended for it to. Is, is that is that kind of one way of putting it? Yeah, that's right. And then I think you know the like how big of a problem do you think this is? depends in large part on how far you think these systems are going to get. Like how intelligent are they going to be? How far are they going to be able to generalize? Like what types of tasks are they going to be able to perform to what level? And I think there's just like, I don't see any particular boundaries on how far these things can go. If we're building systems that... Uh, consist of neural networks that are you know, much larger than the human brain that are using much more compute um, that are deployed on very large scales on much more data than any human has ever seen then it just doesn't really seem like we can be confident at all that the returns to being more intelligent and coming up with better plans tail off at any given point
0: yeah so the AI that people have been most likely to, to play with and taken an interest in this year are these image models and these text models where you kind of draw in some text and you get an, an image or some text back. But th- there are systems that are more like this planning, strategizing thing, right? I mean, of course, of course, there's, there's the famous ones that play chess or go and so on. But uh, perhaps a bit more like real life planning are the ones that play computer games like StarCraft II or or, or um, Dota Dota Two that involve potentially like quite long term planning across a very wide, uh, like a very broad space of possible approaches that one could take to to playing this game, and they, they're getting very good at that style of strategy. And planning, which is beginning like is 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 a step in the direction of thinking about how you might operate in the in the real world.
1: So I'd actually say that I I feel pretty uncertain about whether systems that play esports like Dota or StarCraft are actually doing planning in a meaningful sense. Just because they've been trained on so much data, it seems pretty plausible to me that they've just learned a bunch of heuristics and like the sort of high-level pattern recognition that says, you know, when the enemy is coming towards my base, like you know, go left to avoid them or something like that. So I I feel, I think this is a something that people should really look into and try and figure out to what extent are these systems actually internally making plans like inside the neural network as they process information. But Mm -hmm. I I don't really have a strong opinion on whether that's happening now or not. Some examples that are a bit clearer. So I think uh, the Go and chess engines that were built by DeepMind, like AlphaZero, um, they clearly do some type of planning, but in a, very narrow domain. And so it's pretty hard to say whether the type of planning that they do specifically, which is like searching through all a whole bunch of possible moves in order to find desirable board states, whether that Mm -hmm. is going to actually transfer to more sophisticated systems. But I also think that language models are actually a pretty good example to look at right now. Because if you start to ask language models how to perform some high-level task, like if you ask GPT-3 to give you a plan to, you know, become really good at a certain skill or to achieve a certain outcome, it often gives you plans that are pretty sensible. And then I I think there is a clear difference between being able to generate a plan versus being able to act on that plan. But it still seems like being able to generate the plan is much closer to being able to act on the plan than we might have expected a few years ago. Uh, Like, I think Mm. I personally was pretty surprised when I started asking GPT-3 to generate plans for things like you know, if you were an AI in this situation, what would you do? And then it could just come up with a whole bunch of possible strategies that an AI might take in order to achieve certain goals. Mm -hmm. And so I don't see what the barrier is that prevents them from jumping from, here's what an AI should do in a given situation to, you know, once we start training it in more real world context, once we take versions of these language models and give them access to computers or things like that, then actually being able to carry out plans over longer and longer time horizons. Like it does seem like a gradual process, but we seem like surprisingly far along the route of systems that are actually able to generate compelling plans.
0: Right, yeah, I, I, I didn't know that. At a, at a, at a high level level, Are there any kind of considerations or like what's one of the most important arguments, I suppose, that makes you think that there's a real worry here, that there's that there's something, there's an issue that that has to be addressed rather than this being the kind of thing that is just going to be solved in the natural course of events. Or perhaps we're just misunderstanding the situation and there's really nothing to be worried about in the first place.
1: I think one argument that feels pretty compelling to me is just we really have no idea what's going on inside the systems that we're training. So you can get a system that will write you dozens of lines of code that implements a certain function that leads to certain outcomes on the screen. And we just can't figure out, like we have no way of knowing what it's doing internally that leads it to produce that output. Like why did it choose to implement the function this way instead of that way? Why did it decide to, you know, actually uh follow our instructions as opposed to doing something uh quite different like we we just don't know mechanistically uh what's happening there and so it it feels to me like if we were on course to solving this in the normal run of things then we would have a better understanding of what's going on inside our systems but as it is like without that core ability it, it feels hard to rule out or uh to be confident that we're going to be able to address these things as they come up because just like it's a black box as these systems get more intelligent. Yeah. Anything could be going on. And there has been some progress towards this, but it feels, you know, still very far away or like the progress on this is not clearly advancing faster than the capabilities are advancing.
0: I suppose this is the first really complicated machine that we've ever produced where, we don't know how it works. We know how it learns, but we don't know what like, <laughs> what that learning leads it to
1: do internally with the information, or at least we don't know it very well. Right. And, you know, in some sense, raising a child is like this, but we have, you know, many more guarantees and much more information about what children look like, like how they learn and what sort of, you know, inbuilt biases they have such that they're going to mostly grow up to be like moral, like law-abiding people. So maybe a better analogy is just raising an alien and uh, just like Mm. not having any idea uh, how it's thinking or when it's trying to reason about your reactions to it or anything like that. And, you know, right now, uh, I don't think we're seeing very clear examples of deception or manipulation or models that are like aware of the context of their behavior. But again, this seems like, Something where there doesn't seem to be any clear barrier standing between us and building systems that have those properties.
0: Yeah, even with humans, not not all of them uh, turn out to be to be quite that benevolent. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what's what's another important reason you think advances in AI may not necessarily go super well without a conscious effort
1: to, to to reduce the risks? I think that a lot of other problems that we've faced as a species have been kind of. On human timeframes, so you just have a relatively long time to react and a relatively long time to build consensus. And you know, even if you have a few smaller uh, incidents, then things don't accelerate out of control. Uh, you know, the, I think the closest thing we've seen to you know real exponential progress that like people have needed to wrap their heads around on a societal level has been COVID, where you know people just had a lot of difficulty grasping how rapidly the virus could ramp up and yeah. how rapidly people needed to respond in order to have like meaningful precautions and so in ai it feels like it's not just you know one uh, system that's like developing exponentially it's like you've got this whole underlying trend of things getting more and more powerful and so we should expect that people are just going to underestimate what's happening and the scale and scope of what's happening consistently just because our brains are not built for visualizing the actual effects of fast technological progress or, uh, you know, anything near exponential growth in terms of like the effects on the world.
0: Yeah, for, for me, maybe the, the thing that makes me worry the most is the analogy to humans, where, you know, humans got to be somewhat smarter than or at least more, more generally capable than the species around them. And then over time, by accumulating knowledge between generations and increasing the the number of brains and the, the number of uh, humans that are out there, we kind of took over the show and now get to dominate uh, what happens. And then you think, well, in future, you could have AIs that similarly become more generally capable than, than, than humans are and potentially can operate faster. And then, of course, they can become extremely numerous because we can just produce more chips on which they can run. And so... By, by analogy, one might think, well, perhaps most of the decision-making and most of the influence over the future will be passed over to these potentially even more numerous and even more capable beings. So we, we better make sure that we've raised them right. Does that argument kind of stand out in your head as well?
1: Yeah, I think this is a pretty strong argument for, you know, taking the problem seriously just on a very basic level, just like, oh, this is a thing that could happen and like could happen on relatively fast timescales, uh, you know, in the same way that humans ended up basically in charge of the world on timescales that were very rapid in evolutionary terms. I, I think I've placed a little bit less weight on this argument than I used to, hmm. uh, just because it feels like now that we have more details of uh, understanding like deep learning, neural networks, the types of systems that we're actually building, we can start to zoom in a bit more. I think like this argument is most compelling when you just have like relatively little idea of the types of AIs that we're going to build. And the more detail we have there, the more we can start to make like more specific arguments, I guess. So So I, I started doing my PhD on this like broad analogy of like thinking about the link between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. And then one of the reasons that I moved away from this was because I thought that we could just zoom in more and kind of like get more confidence by actually thinking about the cutting edge systems that we have today.
0: Mm, yeah, that makes sense. How much does it influence you, the fact that there's this kind of debate back and forth where people will try to suggest a way that you, uh, like some sort of instruction that you might be able to give to ML systems and say, well, if we gave them this kind of instruction, then it seems like it would be safe. And then people try to think, well, how could that be perversely interpreted and how could that lead to undesired behaviors? And then they'll come back with, with some objection saying, no, this permits or it even might encourage, you know, power seeking or, or deceptive behavior. And then people will try to patch it and then people will object again that that still doesn't work. But the fact that people haven't been able to propose kind of an, an objective that you could give um, ML systems that that seems robustly safe troubles me. Does that also
1: trouble you? Yeah, I think the thing that particularly worries me here is that it feels like people have pretty different standards for what counts as uh, evidence about a solution to the problem compared with what counts as evidence for the problem existing in the first place. So, you know, there are a lot of people who say, well, this is quite speculative, like we, we can't really know anything about future systems. So we may as well just like wait and see. But then like, you know, often those people will also say, and look, like here's a potential solution that could work and just like throw out a few haphazard ideas. I, I think like if we're really going to take seriously uncertainty about the future, which I think we should, like it's, it's just very hard to predict this stuff. Then I, I just have never seen the sort of proposal that gets anywhere near the level of rigor and carefulness that it should motivate us to say, well, we should be happy with this. Let's not actually work on the problem anymore. Let's like focus on other things. It it seems like we're just absolutely nowhere near having solutions that we can be sufficiently confident in to kind of uh, dismiss the problem.
0: Yeah. Is there any other kind of common response uh, or kind of common skeptical response that uh, that you get to these concerns that you think is misguided?
1: A lot of people talk about Anthropomorphism, as in, you know, it seems like we are, it seems like people who are worried about these problems are expecting AIs to be more similar to humans than they actually will be. And, you know, I I think this is an important and valuable intuition to have. Like, you know, anthropomorphism is very common and like we should definitely watch out for it. I think the idea of systems pursuing goals and like trying to reason about how to achieve those goals though is just fundamentally not an anthropomorphic concept it's just a claim about how intelligent systems can achieve outcomes in the world and so as long as we're assuming that we're going to have systems that can achieve these like long-term large-scale outcomes in the world that can you know actually run companies for example or actually like make decisions about what sort of plans they want to implement then i think I have a hard time seeing what other strategies and mechanisms they could use apart from some kind of like planning and reasoning about their models of the world. So that, you know, it is important to be watch out for anthropomorphism, but in this particular case, it feels hard to say what the alternative is.
0: Yeah. I suppose, I mean, there's some behaviors that you might think are extremely fundamental. And yes, ML systems in future might share them with humans, but that's that's just because that's the way you get things done. So for example, trying to anticipate how things would be different if you behave differently, that's something humans do. It's probably something that any agent that's trying to influence the, the future course of events is probably going to do as well. Right. But I'm surprised that people kind of make that, make that argument because in my mind, the, <laughs> the thing that I'm more worried about is that the uh, you know AIs are going to operate an extremely inhuman way. If, 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 I, if they were going to behave like people, then I would be less concerned because I kind of know how people behave and there's only so bad it gets uh, and there's only so strange it gets. But uh, kind of the problem is that because these are alien minds in a way, really all bets are off. It, it could behave in extremely un- unpredictable and strange ways that we'll never expect another person to.
1: Right. And I think, you know, people might say, well, we, we don't even need to think of these as alien minds. We can think of them as just like software or something, just like, you know, it, it does what we try to build it to do because like that's what software does and we're going to like engineer it in the same way as we do current software which is like you know a lot of checks a lot of tests and things like that and i think fundamentally that's not taking seriously enough the idea of like generalization and transfer to new tasks the idea that Mm. you can actually have systems that are not just doing one specific thing that you designed them to do but actually just can think about the world as a whole, that understand the world as a whole and can apply that knowledge in many different domains. So I think that's the sort of core premise that you need to take seriously in order to switch from thinking of AIs as just like normal products that we're building to actually, yeah, other minds, if you will, and other minds that may uh, be trying to achieve things. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll come back to
0: discussing the the nature of the of, of the problem later on, and we're actually going to talk about a paper you wrote called "The Alignment Problem from a Deep Learning Perspective," which which talks about some of these issues in a, in a slightly more technical and and precise way. But for now, yeah, let's let's come back uh, and focus on getting up to speed on what's been going on in the in the AI world over the last six months or, or year. As we mentioned in the intro, you work at OpenAI these days, because a lot of listeners will have heard of OpenAI uh, because it's made a bit of a splash with its various language models, and this year it's its image
1: model, uh, DALI 2.
0: For those who aren't familiar, though, uh, yeah, can you give us a refresher on what OpenAI is trying to accomplish?
1: Broadly speaking, OpenAI's goal as an organization is to make sure that the development and deployment of advanced AI systems goes well. And what specifically that looks like has changed a bit over time, but I think some of the key things that people at OpenAI are thinking about are how to, you know, make sure that we build systems that are aligned with human preferences. Uh, how to ensure that those systems are governed well, and then make sure that the benefits are distributed widely to people across the world. And then, you know, what that looks like on a day-to-day basis is uh, a bunch of people just like doing research on cutting edge machine learning systems. and I think in particular, from a very empirically focused perspective. So I think OpenAI, as compared with most other machine learning labs, is just much more focused on actually building systems and then seeing what happens, rather than doing much more abstract theoretical work.
0: Yeah. Okay, so it's a bit more of a learning by doing mentality. Is that it? What are the different kind of strands of safety related work that people do having having built these models? Are, are, are there different kind of schools of thought or different, different approaches that people are adopting?
1: So the main thing that the people on the alignment team at OpenAI are doing is applying reinforcement learning from human feedback. That is like getting a bunch of humans to evaluate the behavior of our models and score their outputs and then feeding that back into the system to try and make sure they behave in more desirable ways. Uh, And that's led to a few different products and uh, releases like the Instruct GPT models, which are fine-tuned to be more obedient than the original base models. And then people are working on trying to leverage this to perform tasks that humans have a lot of difficulty supervising. So for example, an AI system that is being used to summarize a whole book. That might be very difficult for a human to evaluate because it's just hard to like read the whole book. It takes a long time and then check whether the summary is correct. So some of the types of work that people at OpenAI are doing involves breaking tasks down so that they can be more easily evaluated by humans. And then I think this is just going to become increasingly important as the tasks that AIs perform uh, become more and more complex. And then after the systems have been built, there's a whole branch of the organization that focuses on what to do with them. So this is the broader policy research team of which the governance team is a part and the focuses of the policy research team include things like how should we like release these models to the public or when should and if we should release the models to the public and so openai has focused on releasing models via an api that allows us to monitor what people are doing with them and like figure out how the capabilities of those models are actually advancing over time and what sort of things we want to be on the lookout for?
0: Okay, so it's really, I suppose it's it's, it's very applied stuff where you've got particular models, and then you're trying to, I get, yeah, I guess, I guess, improve them with feedback, uh, and you know, look at the results and see where they're going wrong, and try and improve it. Uh, and then, I guess, on the delivery side, then you've got to think about all of these really practical issues about which models are safe to put out, which ones aren't, and then can you release them in a way that doesn't fully release them that allows people to, to use them, but but within particular reasonable bounds, right? Um. Yeah, why did you decide to work at OpenAI rather than somewhere else? There's, there's been quite a proliferation of different uh, groups trying to to make AI AI safe lately.
1: Yeah, I think I chose to work at OpenAI because it felt like a bunch of the people there were pretty excited about the work I wanted to do, which is this you know high level thinking about how we can affect. The development and deployment of AI, including governance and including high level alignment thinking. So yeah, it, it felt like there was buy-in from people at OpenAI to like having more people understanding these and then uh, taking actions accordingly. Partly that's because OpenAI is a pretty non-credentialist organization. So you know mm. they encouraged me to drop out of my PhD because they thought that it was just more important for me to s- start doing the work immediately. And in hindsight, I think that makes a lot of sense. And you know, it's increasingly common that like larger research organizations are less focused on people having PhDs. uh, And I think OpenAI has been leading the trend in that regard. Uh, So those are a couple of the key reasons. And of course, there are just like a bunch of great people there who I'm like very excited to work with, in particular, the team I'm currently on, which is headed by Jade Leung, and has a few other great people who I work with every day. Yeah.
0: The biggest worry I hear about OpenAI strategically is that So so, so one framing of these issues is that we have something of a a race between improvements in what AI is capable of doing in its ability to learn quickly and efficiently from data and its ability to to generalize and plan and all that stuff that we've been talking about earlier. And then our understanding of how we can pair those systems or or how we can organize those systems so that they act in ways that are predictable and safe and aligned with our intentions and, and so on. And I guess a worry might be that all of the research that OpenAI is doing in AI uh, is is really quite impressive, and maybe it's advancing the first of those things. It's it's, it's advancing the generalizability, uh, and it's advancing the the efficiency, and so on, in a way that leaves less time for the for the second uh, side of things that uh, that you're potentially working on. Yeah, how, how does um, OpenAI think about that that issue? I guess sometimes it's called a differential technological development.
1: Yeah, so I think I, I already mentioned that OpenAI is very sort of empirically minded organization that's like very focused on like seeing what evidence we can collect from cutting edge models and then updating accordingly. So I think that like OpenAI's position on this has uh, developed over time as like we get increasing amounts of evidence that actually you know we're we're pretty uncertain what's going on with these models and there's like increasing reasons for caution. Mm. So yeah, this is something that people are pretty actively thinking about, just how to ensure that we don't get into worrying races or like cases where people are cutting corners. And overall, I think that, yeah, just in terms of investing in alignment in particular and also governance, I think that's really a case where we want as many great people as we can get. So that's like one of the key focuses is just like bringing in people who can in fact help figure out what the best strategies are uh, and that's a significant part of what my job is. Would you personally like to
0: see, you know, um, ML research as a field of progress AI capabilities, uh, you know, and get get closer to potentially general AI? Would you like that to to happen
1: sooner and faster, or, or or slower? I think the line between alignment research and capabilities research is in fact a little thinner and blurrier than people used to think. So you know, there's a lot of work on interpretability, for example, that could in theory eventually be used to design better architectures or like more sophisticated training algorithms or things like that. Um, And in general, I'm mostly interested in the field of ML being more of a scientific discipline rather than just sort of, you know, like Facebook's Motto: Move fast and break things. Like I prefer, yeah. like I, I think these are kind of like two different approaches to thinking about machine learning, and I prefer we have this like careful scientific style understanding of what we're trying to do, as opposed to moving fast and breaking things.
0: I see. So it's it's not just about uh, let's just make new stuff that kind of seems to work. It's uh, you more want to have a mentality that we want to deeply understand what is going on here. We want to actually understand the phenomenon, right? OpenAI, I guess, has its kind of high level. Strategy or high-level description of what it sees as a potential path to making AI become both more powerful but have it go well. If that strategy doesn't work out, what, what, what do you think is the most likely reason for it to 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 fail or go awry?
1: Probably that the underlying bet that OpenAI is often making, which is that you know an empirical understanding of the bigger systems is like the best way to make progress. Like we could just. Mm be in a world where that's not actually the case and we need like more foundational theoretical research for example or like more time just spent trying to understand the models we have for example mm. and you know so i, I tend to think of open ai's alignment research as like part of a wider portfolio of bets that the alignment community is making where you know open ai is focused particularly on the case where a bunch of like very empirical work is going to be the Uh, best bet and then other groups are focused a bit more on you know more theoretical work and like you know trying to do more prediction in advance of what these sophisticated systems are going to look like rather than focusing on the things which are currently at the cutting edge and yeah so so that's just like one way in which different people are making different bets and I feel uncertain about which category of bets is going to be end up being the right way to go.
0: Uh, what what's an argument that stands out to you on the kind of question of, you know, sh- should you as an individual work on the empirical side of things, or perhaps more the theoretical
1: or, or conceptual side of things? Or is that just uh, an incredibly difficult one? I tend to think that people should go with their comparative advantage a lot of the time, in particular, what interests them the most and what they really enjoy doing? What like, can they imagine getting really obsessed with? So by default, I think that you know, starting off by actually just like staring at these systems a lot, like trying to, yeah, you know, getting as hands-on as possible just seems like a robustly good strategy. And then if from there you start noticing ways in which like, Hey, there's this like interesting, you know, this interesting phenomenon that I want to try and understand on a deeper level, or like I should branch out into like doing a bit less, like building these systems and a little bit more, you know, of a different type of research then. That's in some ways the strategy that I did myself, where I started off as an engineer and then realized that there were a whole bunch of higher level questions that I wanted to have answered and that nobody else was really trying to answer. So I I think I recommend that for most people. Okay, yeah. uh, Pushing on from OpenAI specifically, I was hoping we we could maybe
0: go through some, I guess, some background empirical information that I think, well that I think I understand. Uh, maybe maybe you'll be able to correct some of it, uh, but that I think kind of in, maybe informs uh, some of my, my worries and some of my predictions about how things might go. First one was, yeah, do we have a rough idea when it will be affordable to run AIs with the same total computational
1: ability as a, as a human brain? And, and is that the right way to think about it? So I think the thing that's worth distinguishing here is between running an AI that uses the same amount of compute as a human brain versus training that AI in the first place. So when we're talking about these large neural networks you know much more compute is spent on training the system in the first place than in actually running it and so according to a report by Joe Calfsmith from Open Philanthropy we actually already do have enough compute to run uh, the equivalent of a human brain it's just that mm. in order to get a neural network that's the size of a human brain to do useful things you need to do a bunch more training uh, which is going to take a much more compute. And and that feels like a much more difficult thing to estimate because, you know, how are we going to train the system? On what data? These are all uncertain variables. But the best estimate we have from that is by Ajaya Kotra, uh, also from OpenFill. And she thinks that it's plausible within this decade and then likely within the decades after that, that we can train systems that are as large or do as much computation as the human brain. Okay, so
0: so there's two quite different stages, I guess. There's the, there's the training stage, which involves a huge amount of computation. And then there's the, like, having trained the model, then then applying it, which involves a whole lot less. I suppose, <laughs> I suppose you can think about uh, at the training stage, is the training process using as much uh, compute as a human brain has available, uh, is, is one question. I suppose you could also think, well, a human brain is trained over a very long period of time, so maybe we should ask the question... Uh, during the training process, is as many computations done as a human does over their entire lifetime? Uh, would that
1: be a more sensible question to ask? Yeah, uh, well, Yeah. can, can you de-confuse me? I think all of these things are sensible things to ask, and it's pretty unclear which of them is the most relevant. So in uh, the original report by Ajaya, she just used a bunch of these different possibilities as anchors for the estimates, So she just estimated, you know, how much compute would we need if it turns out the closest analogy is to, uh, you know, the amount of compute used by a human brain over a single lifetime versus a bunch of different other possibilities. So it's hard to say what the most analogous setup is. I think, you know, because evolution did a lot of work in getting human brains to the point where we can learn really efficiently, it feels like you're very likely going to need much more experience and much more training than an individual human does throughout their lifetime. But whether that's, you know, a couple of orders of magnitude or like many orders of magnitude is is like really hard to know. Probably, you know, it starts off being many orders of magnitude and then as uh, algorithms get better, it starts dropping until you get pretty comparable, you know, efficiency as the human brain would be my best guess. Okay. So one
0: answer would be, well, we already do have computers that uh, can do as much compute as the human brain. And then another answer, well, de- depending on how you look at it, you could say, well, maybe this decade or if not, in at least in decades to come if, if kind of current trends persist. So there's this big ratio between the amount of computation required to train a model and then how much there is to apply it, which I guess means by the time you have enough computation around to train a system that looks at all uh, like, a, like, like a human being, by the time you've done that, then with the compute that you used for that, you'd be able to run this system, many, many, like many, many, many instantiations of it. Do do you have a sense of how many, yeah, how how many people you could run by the time you've you've trained one of them?
1: So this is a slightly tricky question to answer because it depends on, you know, exactly how your uh, training setup works. Like if you use a very small amount of compute for a very long time, that's going to be different than if you used, you know, a lot of compute for a short time when training it. You know, I, I think a reasonable ballpark figure is that Uh, You can run thousands of copies of a given model using the same amount of compute that you used to train it. Uh, But probably a better way of thinking about it is just in terms of costs. So, you know, Mm. training a cutting-edge language model, uh, you know, numbers around like a million, 10 million seem pretty reasonable for how much it costs to actually run all of that training. And then Mm. the cost of using that model to actually do a task like writing an essay or solving a problem for you is more like one cent. So that's like a pretty massive disparity between Mm. what it takes to actually train the model versus what it takes to run it. And in, in some cases, the disparity can be smaller. So in systems like AlphaZero, for example, you can just use as much computation as you want when running it because that's an architecture that's actually very scalable at runtime. You can just like keep using more and more of it to like search through different possible games. But for our current cutting edge systems, like these large language models, it's a fairly fixed ratio, which is something like a million or $10 million for training to a couple of cents for doing standard tasks.
0: And I suppose with, yeah, with with images, it might be similar, $10 million to train it and then a cent per per image the, that you output. Yep. So it, yeah, so it's a pretty, a pretty big ratio, although I guess I'm not exactly sure... I suppose, you know, producing one image might turn out to not be very much in the scheme of things in terms of one's reasoning capacity. So, you know, actually actually running uh, an actor that was doing all sorts of stuff might might involve you know, producing the equivalent of, of very large numbers of images. And so it might actually cost a decent amount of compute and electricity and so on. Right. What's something we've learned or I uh, think that we might possibly have learned from recent advances in AI capabilities?
1: So I've already alluded a little bit to how the the unpredictability of capability advances and how you know things like reasoning strategic thinking and so on might just come much earlier than we expect i think another thing that has felt pretty important is that we don't really know what the capabilities of our systems are directly after we've built them anymore. So uh, once you train a large language model or a large image model, uh, it may be the case that there are all sorts of things that you can get it to do given the right input, the right prompt, the right setup uh, that we just haven't figured out yet because they're like emergent properties of what the model has learned during training. Uh, So probably the best example of this is that people figured out that if you prompt the model to think through step-by-step step in its reasoning, it's able to, uh, these are like large language models, they can answer significantly more difficult questions than they could if you just give them the question by itself, right? So, mm. And this, this makes sense because this is what humans do, right? If you tell somebody to answer a problem by working through like maybe an arithmetic problem, you know, calculate all the intermediate values, they're probably much more likely to get it correct than if you just say, and you have to give me the final answer directly, mm. but this is just something that it took ages for people to figure out because this is you know this was applicable to uh, GPT three and I think also to some extent to a lesser extent to GPT two but you know papers about this were only coming out like I think last year so these are the types of things where actually just figuring out what the models can even do is a pretty difficult task and probably just going to get increasingly difficult.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. That. We might just not, I suppose, because the exploration space of prompts that you can give to these models is so vast, uh, it's, it's incredibly open ended, it's just any any kind of text, that it could be many, many years in principle until someone tries out something and then discovers, oh, well, if you if you phrase the question this way, if you give it this kind of lead in, then you get this different result than what you're getting otherwise. And so in a sense that the model might be much more capable than <laughs> than we'd realized previously. Can that just keep on going
1: and going? I think so and I think it's probably going to get worse because we can think of this as an alignment problem. So in some sense alignment problems are when your model can do the thing that you want it to do and it just doesn't do that as opposed to sort of capabilities problems where it can't do the thing that you want it to do. And so in this case know. this is like a less deliberate or let's say uh, malicious alignment problem because you know we're trying to get it to do a task and it's just like It's not that there's any like deliberate deception going on. It's just that uh, we haven't put in the input in the right way. But you can imagine in future systems, we're trying to get them to do a task and they might just uh, make a deliberate choice not to do that task. And that's something that Mm. we would have a lot of trouble distinguishing from the model not being capable of doing the task. So I think over time, the difference, like trying to figure out what capabilities our model has might become something of an adversarial problem where you actually need to reason about like, what the model's intentions are, like what it's trying to do and like what information it wants you to have, basically.
0: Right. So, so I yeah, I hadn't noticed how analogous this is to the kind of alignment problem or, you know, giving values or, or communicating instructions problem in general, because I suppose you're saying it's it, it's definitely an alignment problem. If, 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 if there was a thing that you could have said that would have communicated better what output you wanted to, to the model, but then you said something that wasn't quite right, it was phrased the wrong way. And so you got, got a result that, that you didn't want how does that connect to the adversarial uh, issue or or the idea of the the model trying to kind of second guess what you want and maybe giving you something that that you don't even if it knows better?
1: Right. So you can imagine that if we're thinking about systems that have learned some kind of long-term goal, then it seems plausible that there are some ways it could demonstrate capabilities that would be more or less conducive to achieving that long-term goal. As a simple example, if you have a model that, for, for a lot of long-term goals, just like having human trust is just useful. And so a model might not want to demonstrate the capability like uh, deceive humans or might not want to demonstrate the capability like being able to manipulate humans very easily. And, you know, I, I think this is like not really a big problem over the next couple of years, but like over time, I expect it to become a bigger and bigger problem that, you know, models are going to understand that we're asking them to try something and just not want to do it basically
0: yeah another thing that I've heard some people uh, speculate that we might be learning from these language models for example is that well we might be learning something about how humans operate uh, because so, so, so these language models are kind of predictive models where you've got some text before and then it's trying to predict the the next word uh, and it seems like using that method you can at least reasonably often produce surprisingly reasonable speech and perhaps, you know surprisingly reasonable articles and and chat and so on now some people would say, Okay, so this looks like what people are doing, but uh, but but it isn't what they're doing. You know, we actually have all of these ideas in our minds, and then we put them together in a coherent way because we deeply understand the the actual underlying ideas and what we're trying to communicate. Whereas this thing is just chucking like word after word after word uh, in, in a way that uh, that produces the, a simulation of of what a person is like. But I suppose when people aren't thinking that deeply. Maybe maybe we operate this way as well. Maybe we're, you know I'm producing speech extemporaneously now, but my brain kind of can do a lot of the work automatically because it just knows what words are likely to come after other words. <laughs> um, do you have any view on you know are these uh, these language models doing something very different than what humans do, or is it are, are we perhaps learning
1: that that the humans use text prediction as a way of producing speech themselves to some degree? I, I think that's a great example, actually. Where yeah, like a lot of the time, human behavior is pretty. Uh, automatic and instinctive, including things like speech, where, as you say, like the words that are coming out of my mouth right now are not really planned in advance by me. I'm just sort of like nudging myself towards producing the types of sentences that I intend. And yeah, so I I think, uh, you know, if we think about like Kahneman's uh, system one, system two distinction, like that, I think that's actually not a bad way of thinking about our current language models that they actually do most of the things that human system one can do which is you know instinctive quick judgments of things and then so far at least they're a little bit further away from uh the sort of metacognition and reflection and noticing when you're going down a blind alley or you're like you, you've lost the thread of conversation mm. but over time i think that's that's going to change M- maybe another way of thinking about them is it seems hard to find a task that a human can do in like one second or three seconds that our language models can't currently do. Uh, it's easier to find tasks that humans can do in like one minute or five minutes that the models can't do. But like, I expect that number to go up and up over time that the models are going to be able to match humans given increasingly long time periods to think about the task until eventually uh, they can just be humans full stop, no matter how much time you give those humans.
0: Mm. So is the idea there that, you know, if you only give a human one second to just blurt out something in reaction to something else, then it has to operate on this very system one or this very instinctive thing, where it's just got to string a string of sentence together, and it never and it doesn't get, really get to reflect on it. And the language models can do that; they can blurt something out. <laughs> but maybe the the thing that they're not so good at is what humans would do, which is maybe look at the sentence that is about to come out of their mouth and then see that that's actually not what they want to communicate, and then uh, you know edit it and 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 make it make a whole lot more sense conceptually.
1: Right. And and sometimes you even see language models making the same types of mistakes that humans make so as an example if you ask it for a biography of somebody sometimes they'll give you a description of their career and achievements that's not quite right but kind of in the right direction like maybe they'll say that the person like went to oxford when actually that person went to cambridge or something like that where it's like you know it clearly remembers something about that person but it's just like uh, hasn't like memorized the detail it's uh, more like it's learned some kind of like broader association maybe it'll say that they studied like biology when actually they studied chemistry but it won't say that they studied you know like film studies when they actually studied chemistry so so it, it seems like there's these kind of mistakes where it's not actually uh, recalling the precise details but kind of remembering the broad outline of the the thing and then just blurting that out which is what humans often do
0: right that makes me kind of wonder: is 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 anyone out there spending, you know, most of their day just playing with these models uh, for for very long periods of time in order to develop possibly a, a much better intuition for how these models think? In a sense, I suppose uh, becoming, I don't know, the, the language model whisperer—a bit of the way that people spend all of their time with horses end up having a deeper understanding of how horses think and, and what well, yeah what, what's going on with them at any, at any given point in time.
1: It's a little hard to track the people doing this. I'm sure there are some. Uh, I only know a handful of people who are doing this myself. Uh, some of them as part of red teaming efforts for like, trying to figure out what the capabilities and potential risks of our current biggest models are. Uh, there are two people at Conjecture, which is a new alignment research organization that are focusing on this. Uh, and some of their work is quite interesting. I, I think the the difficulty here is in navigating the tension between trying to really understand a given model very deeply versus the fact that a lot of the things that work for one particular model are going to be less relevant to future models. So a lot of the ways that people tried to cajole or prompt GPT-2 into doing the things they wanted were just like totally unnecessary for GPT-3, just because it understood their intentions better and it understood their instructions better. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of that knowledge became very quickly outdated. And it feels Quite tricky to figure out uh, how to extract generalizable principles from studying our current best models when they're getting better so quickly. Mm, yeah, that makes sense.
0: What are some bottlenecks to, to to thinking and learning that human beings face, but which uh, these yeah future um, ML models uh, won't won't have to confront?
1: I think the biggest one is just that we don't get much chance to experience the world. We just don't get that much input data and because our lives are so short and we, uh, you know, die so quickly. So there's actually a bunch of work on scaling laws for large language models, which basically say, if you have a certain amount of compute to spend, like, should you spend it on making the model bigger or should you spend it on training it for longer on more data? Like, what's the optimal uh, way to make that trade off? And it turns out that from this perspective, if you had as much compute as the human brain uses throughout a human lifetime, then the optimal way to spend that is not having a network the size of the human brain. It's actually having a significantly smaller network and training it on much more data. So like intuitively speaking, at least, human brains are solving this trade-off in a different way from how we are doing it in machine learning, where in machine learning, we're just taking relatively smaller networks and just training them on way more data than a human ever sees uh, in order to get a certain level of capabilities.
0: I see. Okay. So hold on. So, so, so the notion here is you've got a particular amount of compute, and there's two different ways you could spend it. One would be to have tons of parameters in your model. So I guess this is the equivalent of having, having really lots of neurons and lots of connections between mm-hmm. them. Yep. So you got okay, got tons of parameters. So this is equivalent to like brain size. But another way you could use the compute is instead of having lots and lots of parameters that you're constantly estimating and, and, and adjusting instead have a smaller brain, in a sense, but train it for longer, but ha- have it read way more stuff, have it look at way more images. Right. And you're saying humans are off on this crazy extreme where our brains are massive, <laughs> so, so many parameters, so many so many connections between all the neurons, but we only live for so little time. We, we read so little. <laughs> we hear so little speech relative to what, to what is possible, and we'll do better if somehow nature could have shrunk our brains, but then got us to spend twice as long in school, in a sense. Uh, I guess problem with that might be that you would, well, I suppose there's all, all kinds of problems of maybe getting beings to live quite that long, but you might also yep. get killed while you're in your stupid early infant phase
1: for, for so long. Exactly. So, So humans faced all these trade-offs from the environment, which probably neural networks are just not going to face. And so by the time we're training neural networks that are as large as the human brain, we should be expecting that they won't have as much experience as humans do, but they're actually just going to be training on a huge amount more experience uh, compared with mm. humans. So that's one like way in which humans are systematically disadvantaged. We just like haven't been built to absorb the huge amounts of information that are being generated by the internet or videos, YouTube, uh, Wikipedia across the entire world. Mm. And uh, that's closely related to the idea of AIs being copyable, right? So like if you have uh, a neural network that's trained on one piece of data you can then make many copies of that network and deploy it in all sorts of situations uh, and then you can feedback the experience that it gets from all those situations into the base model uh, so you know effectively you can have a system that's learning from a very wide array of data and then taking that knowledge and applying it to a very wide range of new situations uh, so th- these mm. are all ways in which you know i think in the sort of short term, humans are disadvantaged just by virtue of the fact that we're running on biological brains in physical bodies rather than virtual brains in the cloud. Right. And then in the longer term, I think the key thing here is just what algorithmic improvements can you make? How much can you scale these things up? Because you know, over the last decade or two, uh, we've seen you know pretty dramatic increases in the sizes of neural networks that we've been using, and The algorithms that we're using have also been getting significantly more efficient. And so we can just think about artificial agents investing in doing more machine learning research and improving themselves in a way that humans just simply can't match because our brain sizes, our brain algorithms and so on are pretty hard coded. There's not really that much we can do to change this. So in the long term, it seems like these factors really should lead us to expect AI's to dramatically outstrip human capabilities.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so they, so they don't die. So they could just keep accumulating knowledge forever. And as more stuff comes out in the internet, they don't have to throw out the old stuff. They just read the new stuff and, and, and add it in. Um, I guess as compute gets cheaper, they can just throw, you can just throw more compute at it. Whereas the human, human brain is kind of <laughs> stuck at its particular clocking speed. Right. It's not, not, not getting any faster. It's not getting any bigger. I suppose. Oh yeah. And also we can keep reprogramming these things, making the algorithms more efficient. Humans are just kind of stuck with the software, right. <laughs> software that we have for better or worse. Um, one other thing I'd heard that I'm not sure what the implication is, but don't signals in the human brain, just because of limitations and kind of the engineering of neurons and synapses and so on, they tend to move pretty slowly through space, whereas uh, like much less than the, uh, the speed of electrons moving down a down a wire. So in a sense, our, our signal propagation is quite gradual and our reaction times are really slow compared to what computers can manage. Is that right?
1: That's right. But I think probably this effect is a little overrated as a factor for overall intelligence differences between AIs and humans, just because it does take quite a long time to run a very large neural network. So if our neural networks just keep getting bigger at a significant pace, then it may be the case that for quite a while, most cutting-edge neural networks are actually going to take a pretty long time to go from the inputs Mm. to the outputs, just because you're going to have to pass it through so many different uh, neurons. Stages, so to speak. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I I do expect that in in the longer term, there's going to be a significant advantage for uh, neural networks In terms of uh, like thinking time compared with the human brain, but it's, it's not actually clear how big that advantage is now or in the foreseeable future, just because, you know, it's just really hard to run a neural network with hundreds of billions of parameters on the types of chips that we have now or are going to have in the coming years.
0: Yeah. So I mean all of this kind of raises the question why aren't computers much better than us at everything already I suppose you're you're saying that the the thing that the human brain is exceptional in is just it has tons of parameters which in this case corresponds to lots of neurons lots of uh, connections between them like uh, computers haven't been able to match us with that and i suppose presumably we also suspect that the algorithmic efficiency is quite a, has been quite a bit worse although it that, that that's improving over time
1: Right i wouldn't want to say that the uh, number of parameters is like the be all and end all of how efficient your neural network is like I think uh you know we've had some pretty strong results from scaling up neural networks and they've just gotten much better and so we should expect that trend to continue I, I, I'm not really seeing it stopping anytime soon but at the same time you know how to anchor that compared with a human baseline feels like a very difficult question like you know should we think of neural networks as being more efficient than the human brain in terms of the, using the parameters that they have Is it like Less efficient than the human brain per biological neuron versus artificial neuron? Is it like a couple of orders of magnitude less efficient? That feels very uncertain to me. And so the main thing I want to say is just like, you know, as we approach the point where we're training networks that are within a couple of orders of magnitude of the human brain, it feels like, you know, we shouldn't be ruling a bunch of things out. It may be the case that they're, you know, significantly less efficient than the human brain in terms of like converting number of parameters and number of neurons into actual effective intelligence. But uh, it mm. seems like a pretty strong claim to say oh yeah they're you know many orders of magnitude away uh, in terms of how efficiently they can scale yeah
0: what's a common misconception you run in, into about how ml models work or how they get deployed that 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 it, that it might be helpful to uh, to clarify for people
1: I think the most common and important misconception has to do with the way that the training setup relates to the model that's actually produced so for example large language models we train them by getting them to predict the next word on a very wide variety of text and so some people say well look the only thing that they're like trying to do is to predict the next word like it's meaningless to talk about the model like trying to achieve things or like trying to produce answers with certain properties because like it's only been trained to predict the next word and i think the important point here is that like the process of training the model in a certain way may then lead the model to actually itself have properties that can't just be described as predicting the next word. So it may be the case Mm -hmm. that the way that the model predicts the next word is by doing some kind of internal planning process, or it may be the case that the way it predicts the next word is by reasoning a bunch about how would a human respond in this situation. I'm not saying our current models do, but that's the sort of thing that I don't think we can currently rule out. And Mm -hmm. in the future, as we get more sophisticated models, the link between the explicit thing that we're training them to do, which in this case is predict next word or the next frame of a video or things like that, and the internal algorithms that they actually learn for doing that is going to be less and less obvious. Yeah, okay. So the the, the
0: idea here is, let's say that I was set the task of predicting the next word that you're going to say. It seems like one way that I could do that is maybe I should go away and study a whole lot of ML. Maybe I need to understand all of the things that you're talking about. And then I'll be able to predict what you're likely to to say next. And then someone could come back and say, Rob, you don't understand any of the stuff. You're just trying to predict the next word that Richard's saying. And I'm like, well, these things aren't mutually exclusive. Maybe I'm predicting what you're saying by understanding it. And, And we can't rule out that there could be elements of embodied understanding inside these language
1: models. Exactly. And I think, in fact, we have some pretty reasonable evidence that suggests that they are, you know, understanding things on a meaningful level. Like my favorite piece of evidence here is from a paper Uh, It used to be called moving the Eiffel Tower to Rome. I think they've changed the name since then. But the thing that happens in that paper is that they do a small modification of the weights of a neural network. They they identify the neurons corresponding to the Eiffel Tower and Rome and Paris and then just swap things around. So now that the network believes that the Eiffel Tower is in Rome Mm. and you might think that, okay, if this was just like, you know, a bunch of memorized heuristics and like no real understanding, then if you ask the model a question, where's the Eiffel Tower? Sure, it'll say Rome, but it'll screw up a whole bunch of other questions. It like won't be able to like, integrate that change into its well model. But actually what we see is that when you ask a bunch of downstream questions like, what can you see from the Eiffel Tower or what type of food is good near the Eiffel Tower or how do I get to the Eiffel Tower? It actually integrates that single change of the Eiffel Tower is now in Rome into answers like, oh, from the Eiffel Tower, you can see the Colosseum. Like you should eat pizza near the Eiffel Tower. You should get there by taking the train uh, from Berlin to Rome via like Switzerland or, you know, things like that. That, Uh, And and so that seems to me like, right, exactly. And that, that seems like probably the best, almost like a definition of what it means to understand something is that you can take that isolated fact and translate it into a a variety of different ideas and situations and circumstances. And I, I think, you know, this is still pretty preliminary work. Like there's just like so much more to do here in understanding how these models are actually internally thinking and reasoning. But I think just saying that they don't understand what's going on, they're like just predicting the next word as if that's, uh, mutually exclusive with understanding the world. I, I think that's basically, you know, not very credible at this point.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Who is currently working on developing general AI as opposed to you know specific applications of AI? Um, is is that a and, and is that a a meaningful meaningful question?
1: I think that at this point, language models in particular are becoming increasingly general, and so it's hard to distinguish, you know, any lab that's working on big language models from labs that are really aiming at generality, especially because, you know, a lot of people are interested in integrating like video or audio or a wide range of different modalities. So we're at the point where it's hard to give any like comprehensive list of groups that are working on general intelligence and basically like any big AI lab of which there are, you know, hundreds are doing something that's in the broad direction of building general systems. Mm.
0: But I guess, you know, some groups seem to be like self-consciously saying, you know, we are on the path. We are marching towards producing an AI that can do every, like almost everything or everything. So I think OpenAI is kind of, is in the spirit, right. broadly speaking. And right. I guess DeepMind is in that spirit. They're like, we're going to solve intelligence. We're going to create general AI. Are, are there any other groups other than, than those two that perceive themselves that
1: way? I think um, it's a little tricky to tell. Like, one thing that I think people tend to overestimate is the extent to which the priorities at top AI labs are set by the explicit leaders of those labs as opposed mm-hmm. to the researchers who are working within those labs. So, you know, it's not really that clear to me what would be different about, say, Google Brain, for example, if the leadership had explicit priorities to build AGI as opposed to like implicit priorities like we want the best language models. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess that's a little bit of a harder thing to like really pin down. Like, the, the other like clear examples are like Anthropics, uh, you know, working towards general systems and then, you know, Google Brain, uh, Facebook AI research are doing pretty cutting edge work as well. Um, mm. And then, you know, a, a, whole, a whole bunch of other places that are like some that are more like startups, some that are more like labs attached to big companies, some that are like, Consortia of different countries working together, like in the EU, uh, some in China, and so on. Yeah, it's it's really like a Cambrian explosion of AI right now.
0: Earlier on, we um, kind of uh, gave gave more kind of general conceptual reasons so the arguments that that concern me about uh, why. Uh, why positively shaping the development of, of AI is a is an issue that people should really be concerned about. Uh, but let's let's dive in now. At least zoom in and get a bit more technical and think about exactly how um, models actually work. Uh, and talk about this paper that you wrote called "The Alignment Problem from a Deep Learning Perspective." Yeah, what did you want to
1: communicate or, or add to the conversation with with that paper? A lot of the original arguments about AI risk were at a very high level of abstraction, and I think that's you know pretty reasonable because like back when those arguments were being formulated, we hadn't gone through the deep learning revolution. We had much worse ideas of what it might look like for these systems to start approaching general intelligence. But now that we do, and now that we've made so much progress in deep learning, I wanted to see like how concrete we could get these scenarios where AI is like learn misaligned goals and then misbehave. Like how concretely can we convey these core ideas? And I think the the way I ended up phrasing this was in terms of like the things that happen throughout a training process. So I'm imagining uh, a large scale training process of a large neural network and then thinking about, okay, as it becomes more and more competent, what might happen? And like, what are the forces that are going to be pushing it towards acting in aligned ways versus in ways that are unintended and misaligned with human preferences?
0: Yeah. Remind me, what is a deep learning perspective
1: specific? What, what What's deep learning as opposed to other forms of learning? Right. So, deep learning is just the use of large neural networks, and in particular, neural networks with like multiple layers, in order to learn from data. Uh, and that's basically, you know, taken over the field of machine learning, especially over the last decade or so, where like basically any cutting edge system you'll see is a deep learning system that's got a neural network that's you know somewhat analogous to the human brain, and that it has artificial neurons that are connected together, uh, and the connections between those neurons are. Formed by learning from data, yeah. So that, that that's the basic idea.
0: Okay. Yeah. So so the deep is lots of layers of neurons, big lots right. of parameters, big you know big, bigger brain kind of. Yep. Okay. Yeah. In in the abstract of this paper, uh, you, you wrote the report aims to cover the key arguments motivating concern about the alignment problem in a way that's as succinct, concrete, and technically grounded as possible. I argue that realistic training processes plausibly lead to the development of misaligned goals in artificial general intelligences, in particular because neural networks trained via reinforcement learning will learn to plan towards achieving a range of goals, gain more reward by deceptively pursuing misaligned goals, and generalize in ways which undermine obedience. Okay, let's let's go through those three issues one by one. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to explain in a not super technical way uh, why it's a problem that neural networks trained via reinforcement learning will learn to plan towards achieving uh, a, a range of
1: goals? Yeah, so I think this part is not a big problem in its own right. It's more like setting up some background concepts for how to think about these networks. So in particular, a lot of people think about the behavior of neural networks that are trained via reinforcement learning which is, you know, when they're given rewards and penalties based on their behavior. A lot of people think about this purely in terms of what rewards the system gets and like how that determines its behavior. So a lot of people will say, oh, the goal of the system is to like get high reward. And I wanted to focus on a more specific concept, which is the idea that these networks are going to have internal representations of outcomes. That is, you know, within the weights of those networks, there are going to be some neurons corresponding to different concepts. And some of those concepts are going to be outcomes in the real world. And we've seen some examples that kind of uh, move towards this so far. So like there are studies of uh, neural networks that were used for image recognition where they could identify the specific neurons that corresponded to like pictures of cats or pictures of dogs or, you know, different shapes, different angles, uh, different textures and so on. And so you could say like, look, here's a model that builds up representations of cats or dogs or whatever by combining representations of shapes and textures and outlines and things like that. Mm. And so I'm just hypothesizing that this goes further, that it's not just representations of objects like these, but in these more general systems that are trained on a wider range of tasks, they're going to learn representations of actual real world outcomes. Like, you know, the human is happy with my performance or I got to the end of the maze or I won the game mm. or things like that. Mm. And then exactly how they're going to use those representations to choose actions, you know, feels like a very open question, but the the main claim I'm making here is just that like these networks are in fact going to learn these complex representations. And then those representations are going to feed into their actions via, you know, some of them representing desirable outcomes and some of them representing undesirable outcomes. And then uh, they're just going to learn to choose actions, which tends to lead more towards the desirable outcomes rather than the undesirable outcomes.
0: Okay, yeah. So to, to have a um, an example in mind that perhaps involves a bit more kind of agent decision-making, planning, and so on. Mm-hmm. I, I was looking recently at this blog post, I think, from DeepMind, it's a couple of years old, where they were training um, a system in, to, to learn to play capture the flag, I think, in, mm-hmm. in these kind of complicated in, environments. And I think they were working on it mostly because you'd have multiple different people on a capture the flag team, and they were trying to get them to coordinate. I'll see whether yep. they could learn to coordinate. But it's, okay, so, so in that case, you're saying, is it that these models, as they learn, they're going to develop sort of intermediate goals where... You know, with capture the flag, the goal is to get the enemy, get, get get the flag and bring it back to your to to your home base. But it's going to have all these intermediate goals where it's going to say, you know, H- have I managed to pick up the flag yet, or has anyone on my team picked up the flag? And then also, you know, are, are, are two of us together? So if one of us gets killed, the other one can pick up the flag. It's going to have all these intermediate things that it's trying to accomplish because it knows that those are correlated with achieving. The final goal, and then it starts developing plans to achieve those intermediate goals as kind of sub sub parts of its strategy. Yeah, uh, is it, I, I, am, I, am I thinking about this right?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. Where there are just going to be a bunch of possible states of the game, and in fact, yeah, DeepMind did a bunch of work to identify which representations the capture the flag agent had learned, including things like my flag is at my home base or things like that. And then mm. it seems like a relatively straightforward extrapolation to say, okay, well, how is it using that representation? Well, it's that representation of my flag is at my home base is somehow like guiding its actions towards outcomes where that continues to be the case, where the flag isn't taken, for example. Now, in this case, I'm I'm not going to say that that agent is doing any like real planning necessarily. It could just have learned to act on instinct, basically, uh, rather than Mm -hmm. reasoning about uh, how to achieve those outcomes. And so the hypothesis here is just that As we get more and more sophisticated agents, the the ways they're going to be aiming towards those outcomes is gonna look more and more like they're actually doing planning or like they're doing some kind of internal reasoning about how to achieve those outcomes. And and then I guess there's a separate question of like which outcomes they're gonna end up aiming towards. And the the reason I phrase this in terms of a range of goals is because I think that, you know, in the early stages of training, I, I don't think we can really say that agents are going to learn you know any one specific overriding goal in kind of the same way that you know humans have lots of different drives we have like the drive towards eating nice food we have the drive towards exercising and the drive towards like succeeding and having people respect us and so on and it's not really like you can say well all of these are just intermediate goals towards some one final goal right rather it happens to be the case that we've just got all of these internal representations of things that we like our actions are partly motivated by each of those and so this seems like a pretty Mm -hmm. reasonable way to think about uh, machine learning systems as they sort of start to approach human level that they're just going to have a bunch of like representations of a bunch of outcomes that they've been rewarded for in the past and they're going to take actions that you know sometimes aim towards each of these different outcomes.
0: I see so so humans do this as well so so in some sense we we do have like broader, or like we do have kind of final goals in life to some extent, but then we develop all of these proxies that we're targeting on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, <laughs> at one level, we don't want to starve, and then we use it as a proxy. It's like, am I standing in front of an open fridge? Uh, or whatever other things we've kind of felt rewarded for in the past. But you're saying, I guess, as, as these models get more and more complicated, they're going to develop a bigger and bigger structure of these representations of different states in the world that they either have positive or negative associations with. And that those are going to end up doing a lot of heavy lifting and driving the actual behavior in any given situation. That's right. Yep, that's right. And, and then, and why does that set off? Uh, should that set off red flags, or is, or is that just setting up the situation for, for for understanding more how they might behave in complicated ways?
1: Yeah. So I think early on in training, this is you know a little bit worrying, but not crucial, right? So if I've if I've got an agent that you know has sometimes been rewarded for being obedient, but also has sometimes, you know, gotten some rewards from being deceptive. And so it's learned the internal representation of like the concept of obedience, but it's also learned an internal representation of a concept like, you know, hide mistakes where possible. Mm. Then like, in theory, at least, if we if we're setting the rewards correctly, like over time, it's gonna end up in situations where these two things conflict. And like hopefully it learns to like prioritize obedience over, for example, hiding evidence of mistakes. But like at least in the early stages, I expect that each of these things is going to be separately rewarded in a bunch of different circumstances. And mm-hmm. so it's not gonna be the case that they're just gonna at least immediately converge just towards like one of these things. So I, I'm kind of picturing these agents that have learned a bunch of drives that are applicable to a bunch of different situations. And then I think, you know, a lot of people would say, well, that's fine. We can just keep training them until they converge towards the only having the goals that we want. And that's when the next part of the argument comes in where I'm saying, well, this is not in fact a reliable mechanism. Like we can't just keep training them until these correlations go away because of the phenomenon I'm going to talk about next, which is situational awareness. And that, that's the second thing that I highlighted in the summary.
0: Yeah, so so, so the second point was um, neural networks trained via reinforcement learning will gain more reward by deceptively pursuing misaligned goals. Uh, yeah, can you elaborate on
1: that? Right. So I, the key idea here is this concept called situational awareness, which was introduced by Ajay Kotra in a report on the alignment problem, and which I've picked up and am using in my report. And the way I'm thinking about situational awareness is just like, being able to apply abstract knowledge to one's own situation like in order to choose actions in the context that the agent finds itself in. And in some sense, this is a very basic phenomenon, right? So like when I go down to the grocery store to like buy some, Matches, for example, like maybe I've never bought matches at a grocery store before, but I have this abstract knowledge of like, okay, matches are the type of thing that tend to be found in these types of stores and like, you know, I can buy them and and like, I'm in a situation where I can walk down to the store. So Mm -hmm. in some sense, this is just like a very basic skill for humans. In the context of AI, it's less like we don't really have systems that have particularly strong situational awareness right now. Like we have agents that play StarCraft, for example, but they don't understand you know, that they are an AI playing StarCraft. They're just like within the game. They don't understand the wider context. Mm-hmm. And then even if you look at language models, I think they come a bit closer because they do have this abstract knowledge. Like if you ask them, what is a language model? How is it trained? All those things like that. Uh, they can give you pretty good answers, but but they mm-hmm. still they still don't really apply that knowledge to their own context. Like they don't really use that knowledge in order to like choose their own answers. But then I think as we train systems that are just like useful for a wide range of tasks, like for example, an assistant, right? Like if you train an assistant AI, then it's got to have to know a bunch of stuff about like, what are my capabilities? Like, how can I use those capabilities to help humans? Uh, Who's giving me instructions? And like, what do they expect from me? And and basically, like, the only way to have like really helpful AIs in these situations is for them to have some kind of awareness of like the context that they're in, the expectations that we have for them, the, the ways that they operate, like the, the limitations that they act under and things like that. Mm. And that's sort of this broad thing that I'm calling situational awareness. So there is, okay,
0: so there's this concept of situational awareness, which is- yep. Uh, it's the water that we swim in, such that it's almost it's a, almost hard to imagine that that it's a thing. But it is a thing that humans right. have that lots of other minds might might not have. But in order to get <laughs> these systems to do lots of tasks that we're going to ultimately want them to do, they're going to need the situational awareness as well uh, for the same reason right. that humans do. So that's that's kind of a next stage, and, and yeah, and then
1: one. And then when you've got systems that have situational awareness, then you start to get, I claim, the problematic types of deception. So. In in the earlier phases of training, right, you might have systems that learn the concept of like, okay, hide mistakes where possible, but they don't really understand, you know, who they're hiding the mistakes from, exactly what types of scrutiny humans are going to apply, things like that, right? They start off like pretty dumb. Maybe they just have this reflex to hide their mistakes, kind of the same way that like young kids Mm. have a instinctive heuristic of hiding mistakes where possible. But then Mm. as you start to get systems that actually understand their wider context, like, oh, I'm being trained in this way, or like, you know, machine learning systems tend to be scrutinized in this particular way using these types of tools. Then mm. you're going to end up in an adversarial situation where if the model tries to hide its mistakes, for example, then it will both know how to do so in an effective way. And then also apply the knowledge that it gains from uh, the humans around it in order to like become increasingly effective at that. So so that's the concern that that like these types of deception are just going to be increasingly hard to catch as models get more and more situational awareness.
0: Yeah, so, so that makes sense to me. What, where is the badness slipping in here? So I suppose you, you've got a model and you're rewarding it. It, it. This model that you're conceptualizing is being rewarded, I guess, at the end of some process where the human says, yes, it did a good job. And yep. then it realizes based on the situational awareness that uh, it's better to lie about mistakes that it's made, for example, because that is one way that it can convince humans to say yes, it, it it did a good job, and so it develops a concept of, and indeed an intermediate goal of hiding mistakes that it makes, mm-hmm. and then you might try to <laughs> try try to outwit that by uh, by 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 checking its behavior, by checking its thoughts, but it is now it has situational awareness, so it might see that you're using these tools, that you're using these approaches to try to root out deception. Right. Uh, and then so it's going to try to counteract that. It's now it develops another concept for how it's going to get around uh, around those uh,
1: methods of detection. Is am I understanding it right? Right. And I think this is particularly important because you know in the normal context of machine learning, you're implicitly assuming that we can just apply a whole bunch of like tests and safeguards and metrics and so on in a way that's not really adversarial. Like like the the sort of normal process of developing software or developing models and like figuring out whether we should deploy them does involve a whole bunch of checks and safeguards. And then the possibility of models being deliberately deceptive is a reason why all these types of safeguards that we might usually expect to prevent us from doing dangerous things with our models to like apply to a lesser and lesser extent over time.
0: So I suppose... Maybe this is just no surprise, really, because we're we're trying to make these models more and more human-like, to be more and more like human agents. And humans show these maladies where they develop their own intermediate goals that we don't like. They try to deceive other people. They they notice conflicts between what they want and other people want, and then kind of can be a bit schemy. So perhaps it's just completely natural that in this process you would recapitulate <laughs> uh, undesired human behaviors.
1: Yeah, that that seems right. Like it's not like we're explicitly trying to make them more human-like. It's it's more like we're trying to get them to do a bunch of tasks. And then it just turns out that things like deception are robustly useful for, uh, you know, getting higher scores on a wide range of tasks. Like, you know, if we think about stock market trading, for example, there's some obvious metrics that you could use, like how much money have you made? But there's also less obvious metrics that we might be interested in. Like, have you done any insider trading or have you done any market manipulation? Mm. And these are the types of things where, you know, a dumb system that starts to learn how to do some market manipulation is probably going to be caught pretty easily, but a system that has situational awareness could plausibly figure out, okay, these are the types of market manipulation that will be caught, and these are the types that won't be caught, and I'm just going to focus on, focus on the latter type.
0: Yeah. Is the original sin here that we're rewarding the system based on us saying, yes, we're satisfied, you did a good job. But that's not ultimately exactly what we want. What we want is to be satisfied and to have our preferences met, and that's not the same thing as pressing a button saying that that happened. Uh, and so there's like there's a bit of slippage between these two, and then all of these behaviors kind of appear in the in the in the crack between them, and it kind of pulls them apart gradually.
1: That seems right, and in particular, if we're trying to do this type of supervision for systems that are more capable than us in certain ways, like maybe you can act. More quickly, uh, whose operations we don't really understand, because you know, if you're trying to reward and penalize a kid, right, for teaching them what to do, then like a lot of the time, this tends to work. Uh, You know, at least Mm. in the short term, uh, you can like mostly monitor them. But you know, in this case, it feels like significantly harder to monitor these systems as they start to get to the level where they can reason, you know, as well as humans can about deception and about what's going to be caught and what isn't going to be caught.
0: Yeah. So suppose, yeah, sticking with the with the child analogy you know a 5 year old isn't as smart and doesn't know as much as an adult so their attempts at deception often get rooted out i suppose not always but right. <laughs> but but pretty often cuz they cuz they're likely to slip up but then with another adult, they they're in a much better position to try to trick you and, uh, and get the better of you in in an, in an adversarial situation and then yep. if you had someone who's not very bright dealing with someone who's really sharp and quite experienced say with deception then maybe they they're at a high risk of getting getting outwitted mm-hmm. and i suppose just for all of the reasons earlier, where we were talking about how these systems can potentially advance quite quickly. You might think after a while, you know, a trainer of one of these systems is going to end up in quite an unenviable situation, trying to detect all of the cases where it's where it's doing something that uh, that wasn't desired. Yep, yeah, absolutely. So it seems like to some extent, people were reasoning about the possibility of kind of a tendency towards deception earlier, before we even knew exactly what machine learning systems would would look like before we had kind of modern, modern mm-hmm. architecture, because you can also approach this at just a higher conceptual level, saying, well, you know, you've got goal X, you discover that, the, uh, you, can, that you can get that using some hack that the, the other agent hasn't anticipated, and so you'll naturally start to do that. Is, is there anything in particular that we gain from looking at the systems that we have now and seeing, well, uh, you know, how specifically does that play out rather than just how does that play out in, in a very abstract case?
1: I think so. Uh, I think you know, when you're reasoning about a system that already has some goals and it's just like learning strategies for doing so, or like trying to figure out strategies for doing so, then this feels different from a system whose goals are in some sense, like being developed as it goes along. Right. So Mm -hmm. a system that's, uh, you know, its goals are going to be changing on the basis of the rewards and the feedback that we give these systems. And so, uh, you know, you could imagine, for example, that if we like really penalize deception often enough, while the system's not smart enough to deceive us properly, then it might just like learn the strong goal of like never deceive humans. And this might actually get us quite a long way. And so, yeah, so I think it's important to think about the process of us reinforcing certain goals of the system and that system trying to figure out novel strategies for achieving those goals as a process that happens in tandem, rather than just thinking about the limits of a system that already has fixed immutable goals. And it's just trying to figure out how to implement them
0: okay so yeah it's, it's the idea here that we now see that the goal formation process of the systems is very messy that's mm-hmm. you kind of you put in some final goal or you have some sort of reinforcement process where you kind of say how satisfied you were with the outcome, but this produces a lot of complexity internally in the in the, in the behavior and there's a lot and there's a bit of randomness in what gets rewarded and 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 and, and what doesn't uh, is is that is that kind of what, what's what's adding the additional insight that that we can have today versus ten
1: years ago right, and then also by like trying to pin this down, I hope that we'll be able to study it and actually understand what's going on better. So if we have the hypothesis look like the goals of a neural network are represented in this way, like maybe it has these concepts represented in the weights and some of those concepts are wired up to others in certain ways and that's what's Mm -hmm. leading to it choosing actions that are deceptive, for example. Then, you know, this seems like the type of work that could plausibly be done empirically on the systems that we currently have today or systems that are not too far away from them. And then, Ideally, we'd then be able to you know, somehow modify or change the goals that these systems have learned in more desirable ways, perhaps in a way that's somewhat analogous to the paper I mentioned earlier of you know, changing the representation of the Eiffel Tower to be you know, linked to Rome rather than Paris. So that, that's like one example of like the more concrete we can get about what we mean by the system having goals, like the ways they're represented and the ways they're formed, the more possible interventions we'll be able to do.
0: This is making me think, if you can find the neuron that fires that uh, is kind of representing deception, then couldn't you, if you you could flip it from kind of uh, Paris to Rome, could you flip it from like mild mild positive association with deception to like maximally
1: negative association with deception? Is is that a crazy idea? Right. That's, I think, the type of thing that, you know, it would be very exciting to be able to do. And the bottlenecks are that, you know, for these very high level sophisticated concepts like deception, it's just you know really hard to know, like, have you actually found the neuron that represents it? Maybe there are like 20 neurons that represent it in like some complex mm-hmm. way. Maybe it has a concept that's kind of similar to deception, but doesn't quite map onto the human concept of deception. So you're actually penalizing the wrong thing. Like th- these are all possibilities that we really have no way of figuring out right now. And we'll need like just a lot of further study in order to move towards that. But, you know, at least if we can pin down claims like, neural networks are going to choose actions on the basis of these internal goal representations, and here are some possibilities for what they might look like, then I hope that we can start to make progress towards that.
0: Yeah. So there's this general thing that, in a sense, these systems, as they're being trained, there's these like selective pressures, these there's pushes towards particular tendencies. And here we've kind of identified a potential ongoing pressure towards deceptive behavior. And imagine if you tried to... So you find the neuron that that codes for deception, uh, and then you try to set it to be really negative. Well... Just as like water, you can know, you can try to bottle water, but it just fills up and then tries to spill over, and and, it, and it's always trying to get to its lowest point because mm-hmm. it's attracted attracted by gravity. Could you then kind of get an offsetting effect somewhere else in the model where it tries to now undo that. It, it tries now to find a new way to to engage in deception that's that's coded differently and isn't being isn't being prevented by this mechanism. Is that, is that a is that a natural thought to have?
1: That seems right. Yeah. So then I don't think that any of these things would be sort of final solutions, but I think they're things that might allow you to leverage. Uh, these systems to help you find better solutions so like maybe if you have one model that you're pretty sure is not deceptive at a certain point in time then you could ask that model hey are these other ones are these other models being deceptive if so how or why and then Mm. like start to leverage the intelligence and the capabilities of those models to supervise other models in turn so it really Mm. it really feels like like we, we don't have like solid proposals for arbitrarily scalable solutions right now but we do have things that might be helpful on models that are plausibly human level, or maybe even like uh, a bit more intelligent than humans. And hopefully we will be able to bootstrap our way into aligning much more sophisticated and much more capable models than we have today.
0: Yeah, set, set a spy to catch a spy. Okay, uh, yep. let's let's do the third one. Um, what, what do you mean by reinforcement learning will
1: generalize in ways which undermine obedience? So the things that I've talked about so far, uh, none of those are the core things that I'm worried about causing large-scale problems, right? So if you have a deceptive model, like maybe it's doing insider trading on the stock market, you know, even if we can't catch that directly, over time, we're eventually going to figure out, oh, something, something is going off here, right? As long as we like have this, maybe we're in a bit of a cat and mouse game where we're trying to come up with the correct rewards and the model's trying to come up with deceptive strategies. But as long as they're like roughly within the human range of intelligence, it feels like we can hopefully constrain a bunch of the worst behavior that they perform. Mm. And then I'm thinking, what happens when these models become like significantly super intelligent? And in particular, like intelligent enough that we just can't effectively supervise them. And what might that look like? It, it might look like them just operating way too fast for us to understand, right? Like if you've got an automated CEO who's like sending hundreds of emails every minute, like you're just not going to be able to get many humans to like scan all these emails and make sure that there's not some like sophisticated, deceptive strategy Mm. implemented by them. Or you've got AI scientists who are coming up with, you know, novel discoveries that are just like well beyond the current state of human science. Like these are the types of systems where I'm thinking, okay, we just can't really supervise them very well. And so what are they going to do? And that basically depends on how they generalize the goals that they previously learned from the period when we were able to supervise them, mm. into uh, these like novel domains or these novel regimes, and so there there are a few different arguments that make me worried that the generalization is going to go poorly. Because you can imagine, for example, that maybe in the regime where we could supervise, like we always penalize deception, and they just learn very strong anti-deception goals, and maybe uh, we just think that is going to like hold up into even quite novel regimes where deception might look very different from what it previously looked like. Instead of Mm. deception being, you know, lying to your human supervisor, deception could just mean, you know, hiding information in the emails you send or something like that. And I think there are a couple of core problems. The first one is just that as a field, the field of machine learning has very few ways to reason about systems that are generalizing and transferring their knowledge from one domain to the other. This is just not a regime that has been very extensively studied. Basically, because it's just so difficult to say, well, look, like you've got a model that's learned one thing. How well can it do this other task? Like what's its performance in this like wildly different regime? Because you can't Mm -hmm. quantify the difference between like Dota and StarCraft or the difference between like speaking English and speaking French. Like these are just very Mm -hmm. difficult things to understand. So that's one problem there. Just like by default, the way that these systems generalize is in many ways totally obscure to us and will become more so as they generalize further and further into like more and more novel regimes. But then there are a few more sort of specific arguments as to why I'm worried that the goals are going to generalize in bad ways. And uh, maybe one way of making these arguments is to distinguish between two types of goals. I'm going to say, I'm going to call one type outcomes and I'm going to call the other type constraints. So outcomes are just, you know, achieving things in the world, like ending up with a lot of money or Mm. ending up, you know, having people respect you or building a really tall building or just, you know, things like that. And then constraints, I'm going to say, are goals that are related to, you know, how you get to that point. So what do you need to do? Do you need to be deceptive in order to like make a lot of money? Do you need to like hurt people? Do you need to go into a specific industry or take this specific job? Like you you might imagine a system also has goals related to those constraints as well. And so the the concern here is something like, for goals that are in the form of outcomes, uh, systems are going to benefit from applying deceptive or manipulative strategies there. So, uh, this is broadly speaking a version of Bostrom's instrumental convergence argument, which basically states there are just a lot of things that are really useful for achieving large scale goals. So, uh, or another way of saying this is uh, from Stuart Russell, who says, You can't fetch coffee if you're dead, right? Even if you only have the goal of fetching coffee, you know, you want to avoid dying because because then you can't fetch the coffee anymore. And so you can imagine systems that have goals related to outcomes in the world. They're going to generalize towards, okay, it seems reasonable for me not to want to die. It seems reasonable for me to like, you know, want to acquire more resources or, Mm. you know, develop better technology or like get in a better position and so on. And these are all things that we just don't want our systems to be doing autonomously. We don't want them to like be consolidating power or like gaining more resources if we haven't told them to or things like that. And then the second problem is, okay, well, if these goals are going to generalize, right? If the goal like, you know, make a lot of money is going to generalize to motivate systems to take large-scale actions, what about a goal like never harm humans or never lie to humans or things like that? Uh, and I think there the problem is that as you get more and more capable, there are just more ways of working around any given constraint.
0: Okay, so I'm, I'm just trying to follow all this. That There was yeah. a lot there. Okay, so there's... Yeah. um you form these kind of intermediate goals and then you're gradually uh, the the systems are being scaled up to try to accomplish more ambitious tasks with more open-ended mechanisms and then if they've learned intermediate goals that we don't exactly like uh, then they might apply those in on a, on a much broader scale so the deception for example if if we, if we didn't give appropriate negative feedback to deceptive methods then then who then who knows uh like what deceptive strategies it might uh, adopt in future when it's given much broader goals, like run this company profitably and so on. And then, as you're saying, on the other hand, when you've got constraints where you're trying to code in things that that a system is not is, is meant not to do, um, as, it, as it becomes larger and larger, there's more and more ways for it to wriggle out of, the, of those rules. Um, am I understanding that right?
1: That seems broadly right. I think maybe the thing I want to specify here is that uh, at this point, we won't really have any ability to like specify constraints or like code things into Mm -hmm. the system. The only thing we can do here is like while they're um, still under our supervision we can like try and reward and penalize various things they're Mm -hmm. doing and then like once they become smart enough that we just don't know what they're doing, don't know if this thing is like good or bad, don't understand whether they're telling the truth or not and sort of like don't really understand at all how to figure out whether they're telling the truth or not. At that point it's going to come down to like which concepts they've learned Mm -hmm. and if they've learned a concept like honesty or obedience like maybe they've learned a version of it which is like never tell a lie but you know there are many ways that you can cause harm without explicitly telling a lie so you actually like when it comes to systems that have a very wide range of strategies because they're very intelligent for achieving outcomes in the world my worry is that we're going to need them to generalize the constraints very broadly as well. So not just don't explicitly tell a lie, but also, you know, don't mislead humans or don't work around humans without telling them what you're doing and th- things like that. So the issue
0: here is, I guess, we have this very kind of complicated set of actual underlying desires and so on. And, but but we're feeding into the system in the training process, it, more kind of binary messages like, yes, that was good. That was bad. That was good. That was bad. Mm-hmm. And it's trying to infer from that what principles it should be operating, at, like what mm-hmm. what means are acceptable in general, uh, which ones aren't, what 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 are the goals, and the problem is it's it's always going to be it's going to come up with all these proxies, it's all of these guesses as to what we as to what we care about, right? But in as much as those aren't exactly what we cared about, then that leaves always a crack as it gets smarter and smarter and can come up with more and more strategies. It can. So you're saying it might learn the general principle don't actively deceive humans because that is sufficient to explain all, all of the negative feedback that it's received so far. Mm-hmm. But that's not exactly what we get. That, that's only one thing that we cared about in this general space. We also cared about lying by omission. <laughs> and so now, it. but now the door is open to lying by omission because it's only learned this far more constrained uh, principle from, from, the, from the feedback that it got. And there's always going to be this gap or, or like... We should expect that there always will be a gap between what we actually cared about uh and what it has actually in what it has been capable what proxies it has been capable of inferring. And then
1: as it gains more and more powerful, it will learn to drive a truck through that crack. <laughs> is that kind of right? Yeah, that seems right. So there's one problem which is we haven't covered all the proxies that it currently is capable of, right? So like mm. you know, explicit lying versus lying by omission. But then you've also got the issue that as it becomes more intelligent, just a whole Uh, more actions are available swathe of possible strategies right exactly like maybe it has never been capable of lying by a mission thus far and now uh, like once it becomes intelligent enough that opens up and you just don't know how the thing we've trained it to do which is never lie is going to generalize to this totally new capability which uh, you know might be you know, lying in a different language, for example, like if it's been only trained to like not lie in English and it learns French, <laughs> d- is is it still going to have the goal of never lying when it's speaking French? Like these are the types of things that mm. we just like have no particularly good way of reasoning about right now.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. I, I, think, I think I've gotten the, the basic thrust of, of, of the paper now. I suppose for, we, we could keep on talking uh, much, much longer about this, I'm, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, people who'd like to get more detail can of course check out the, the paper online. Uh, that, that is the alignment problem from a deep learning perspective. I wanted to now have a bit of a maybe a bit of a bit of pushback, I suppose, because so far I've, I've given you lots of space uh, right. and I give myself lots of space to to express reasons why we should be concerned about ways that things could go wrong. Um, what are maybe the best arguments for thinking that this is all a bit overblown? Uh, you know, I'm really alarmed about uh, where AI might be in 10 or 20 or 30 years, but actually we should probably expect that things will be fine and we'll muddle through and the outcome will probably be be good. Uh, yeah, what, what are the most reassuring arguments that one can offer?
1: So I think the basic reassuring argument is just like, most specific arguments about the future are wrong. It's really hard to, you know, make concrete predictions when we're talking about systems that are very different from the ones we have today. And so, you know, this paper has tried to be like as concrete as possible, but at the expense of, you know, making claims that probably are just going to turn out to be wrong in a whole bunch of different ways. Mm. I I think it's still useful though to, um, to like explore these claims because, you know, even if the specific manifestation of the phenomenon isn't quite right. It still seems like there are some pretty robust underlying phenomena here. Like mm. it's just useful to be deceptive, for example. That just seems like it's often true in a very wide range of contexts. And so even if the specific ways in which I've described systems being deceptive don't actually come out, it still feels like there's something worth investigating there. Mm. And, and and so I think one principle that I think is pretty important is just it's harder to be right yourself than it is to prove other people wrong. And so, you know, I think a lot of arguments that people have given for why uh, alignment isn't important, I I think are pretty weak, to be honest. Like, uh, there are people who are saying things like, there's no such thing as general intelligence when, you know, humans are clearly doing something interesting that allows us to do science and mathematics and build buildings and, like, build rockets and so on. Uh, And, you know, if AIs do that same thing, like, sure, like, maybe we shouldn't call it general intelligence for some specific reason, but whatever it is, like that still seems pretty worrying and interesting. And then I think, you know, a bunch of other arguments that people have given for thinking that deep learning is totally on the wrong track to building general intelligence. I think, again, those, I haven't yet seen a version of those arguments that I find particularly compelling. And so I think that's enough to motivate looking into the problem ourselves. And that's enough to motivate saying, well, actually this thing seems pretty important. I should work on it. But then, then, yeah, there's still a big jump from there to like, all of the specific claims that I make in this paper. Mm. So that's like one broad reason to be more optimistic, or at least to feel like pretty uncertain about what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. Okay. Is another way of framing this that so you know we've got all of these arguments in our mind about uh, you know our understanding of how things, how these systems work, our understandings of how they they might go wrong, but just. It could be very easy for us to think that we've come up with a good argument of that type, when in fact we have not, because it's just so hard to understand, and we're not very good about predicting future technology, and we're just not very good at thinking about and understanding how these AI systems work. Indeed, that's kind of the problem. But at least mm-hmm. when uh, when we don't understand something and we think it's extremely dangerous, it's possible that we've misunderstood that we've misunderstood
1: it because because we just don't have a very good grasp on it. So, so that's that can be reassuring in one sense. Yeah, and that seems like my current thinking is that that line of argument feels sufficient to not be strongly confident in any particular claim about catastrophe but at the same time it's not sufficient to dismiss or discard the field right i think that like the arguments and evidence for ai posing significant risks are strong enough that you know people really should be focusing on this as one of the major issues if not the major issue of our time but you know, while still realizing that there's just a lot of stuff that we don't know and a lot of like Mm. open empirical and theoretical questions that I've been trying to dig into and I'm excited about many more people digging into. Yeah. Are there any other things that somewhat reassure you? Broadly speaking, the ways in which we can use language models to answer a bunch of questions without those language models themselves seeming like they're pursuing goals or like taking large scale actions in the world is somewhat reassuring. Like I think a lot of scenarios that I envision for how things go well involve us just using AI to answer a bunch of difficult questions like how do we make sure to build systems in a more reliable and robust way and just like getting answers from the AIs that we've trained to you know, do scientific research, for example. And so the further we can get on like scientific research type AIs without having AIs that are actually like acting in the world, trying to achieve goals, trying to like make money or like gain power or so on, the better I feel. Mm. Uh, So that's like one uh, cause for optimism. I, I think the countervailing or like the response to that might be, well, look, sure, like these language models are good at answering questions, but actually it's not that hard to get them to start doing tasks. And we're kind of seeing this. I think there are some products put out by Adept recently, which is another uh, AI lab that are trying to like leverage language models into performing more assistant type tasks, and so you know maybe it's just the case that okay, sure, like question answering is a little bit ahead right now of you know general assistant style acting in the world, but like that gap is going to close. I guess is
0: is another way of phrasing this that the more useful. Just these, these, these kind of oracle or like non-agent based models prove to be. The more you think, well, maybe that's what we'll pursue is systems that don't have situational awareness that just spit back input output uh, right. stuff in a way that doesn't feel like they're. I mean, I guess you're saying there is a real blurred line between just doing input output and trying to act and change yep. the world. Yep. However, the, the more useful the the less agent seeming ones are, the more it's possible we'll just invest in that, and that's probably a bit of a that, that's probably a somewhat safer approach.
1: Right. And the the main thing I'm excited about, it's less like reallocating all the funding and research because that seems pretty difficult. But just like, if it turns out to be the case that this type of these capabilities are just easier than I expect. And it's just like, we naturally get question answering systems that are at a superhuman level before we get uh, superhuman CEOs or superhuman assistants, then that, that seems like a reason to be optimistic.
0: Yeah. A member of the audience I wrote in with this question, much or most of the intelligence slash power of humanity is contained in social and societal understanding. Does that mean that even something much more intelligent than a human might not be that dangerous?
1: I think it's some evidence in that direction because it just feels safer to have more AIs that are each individually less capable than to have one big, totally inscrutable system that is just way more capable than any given human. Um, Having said that, I don't think it's, particularly strong evidence just because like suppose that it's true that you need networks of many agents interacting with each other in order to produce very advanced capabilities i don't see a strong reason why that means that those agents will then cooperate very strongly with humans as opposed to like mainly cooperating with each other Mm. and shutting humans out of the picture right so i think that it seems that if humans are trying to maintain control of these whole like societies of AIs that are interacting with each other rapidly and like trading with each other or like, you know, building on each other's work, developing new capabilities together. This feels pretty worrying Mm. because, yeah, we just like don't have the leverage in the situation. We just don't have where we're we're, like less intelligent. We'll think slower. We'll have fewer capabilities. And and so I, I think it's a better situation, but not a good one by any means. Yeah.
0: Okay so, so so my reaction to this was thinking so so it is true that one person however bright they seem to be if they're just isolated and on their own then they they're not going to seem that smart they're going to be struggling just to just to survive I guess mm-hmm. so so much of So much of what makes us seem intelligent as individuals is all of this accumulated experience and knowledge and wisdom that we can absorb from others and our ability to coordinate in in big groups in using strategies and structures that we've accumulated over centuries and on and on and on. So so, so there's that angle. Of course, in as much like AIs that are acting in the world as part of human society on behalf of people kind of can leverage a lot of that as well. (laughs) They're already part of a society. Mm -hmm. They're already part of organizational structures. So... They bring with them, they bring with them, well we bring with us to the, to the table all, all, all of that existing situation. Mm-hmm. Um, another angle on it might be so a single human who can only output the kind of amount of speech at any given time that a human can think, and they can only kind of think about one thing at a time, even if they're really smart, <laughs> like significantly, yep. uh, you know, sharper than any human that's ever lived just with that level of processing capacity they're going to struggle to overpower everyone else because they're massively outnumbered right. and it's an extremely challenging task so in as much as let's say we're in a situation where okay we've managed to train a model that actually is substantially more capable than humans are basically any task and it can learn things pretty fast however we can only we only have enough gpus we only have enough compute to run one <laughs> at, at roughly human speed mm-hmm. then i would not be then i would think we got we got a really good shot that, that this thing is not going to uh, be able to outsmart and outwit <laughs> the, you know human civilization the thing is that that's not going to be a that's not a situation that's likely to persist for terribly well firstly probably we won't even be starting out <laughs> that way at all because we we are going to have i guess what people call a compute overhang where there's just going to be a ton of gpus lying around that probably would be able to run many more instantiations than just one. Mm-hmm. But let's say that that is how things started out. Then we're just going to make, <laughs> we're going to quickly like learn how to make more GPUs. Uh, you know, Moore's Law continues to operate. And then eventually we'll be dealing with a population of millions, kind of an, an AI society mm-hmm. where each individual member is a whole lot smarter than than any than any human that's around. And then eventually we will be back in a dangerous situation, though we will have bought ourselves, I suppose, more time uh, in the in, in, in meanwhile to, to figure out how to, how to make these uh these beings act cooperatively with us um, am i thinking about this
1: uh, straight yeah it does seem like we're on track towards the largest models having many instances of them rolled out like maybe you know every person gets a personal assistant and as those systems get more and more intelligent the effects that they have on the world increase and increase and the interactions that they have with the people who are nominally using them become much more complicated and maybe like it starts to become less clear whether they're being deceptive and so on. Yeah. So I, I think that's broadly right, that we don't really have mechanisms in place for steering towards, you know, limited deployment of the most advanced systems right now. And mm-hmm. I'm optimistic that some types of like governance work, including the types of things that my team's working on, uh, might be helpful for this, but we don't really have concrete solutions right now.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, well, let's push on to solutions. That was that was the next section header. Um, Amazing. So, so those are some reasons to worry more or less about how advances in AI are going to play out. What is, I guess, your big picture strategy personally for how you are going to try to hopefully help things help things go better rather than worse?
1: So, I guess this comes back down to the different strands of work that I outlined right at the beginning. So. Uh, on the alignment front, just like really trying to understand what the problem is, like what we're up against and what types of predictions we're making about how advanced systems will play out. I think just like, you know, because we're working in such an uncertain domain, just like having a better understanding of how the problems that like phrased in intuitive language translate into like concrete and specific machine learning concepts, that, that feels like a big step towards solving them. So that's, my main priority when it comes to like technical alignment work is just like finding ways to bridge the high-level philosophical arguments with the concrete work that's being done on a day-to-day basis. Um, And, you know, this paper that we've been talking about is one attempt towards that. And then hopefully uh, I'm planning to do some follow-up work that like makes it even more concrete. And hopefully to the extent that we can like start running experiments to investigate some of the concepts that I've been talking about.
0: Yeah. So it's a little bit like standing in the middle between you've got kind of Maybe high-level conceptual reasoning about how how agents operate and how they could be made safe, and then turning around to to the empirical results and how the models actually operate, and kind of mm-hmm. switching back and forth between these two and trying to trying to merge them <laughs> into some some right. plan for, for how to make things work well. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think just like the field of alignment has done a surprisingly bad job at this in the past. I think people have just not really tried that hard to ground out these high-level concepts in. You know, concrete machine learning abstractions. And I think to some extent this is reasonable because a lot of classic machine learning paradigms don't really account for things like systems that can generalize to new tasks or systems that are like, you know, neural networks that are doing internal reasoning in ways that we don't understand. Like these are just hard things to think about from a classic machine learning perspective. But I think it's still really valuable to bridge that gap because yeah, just in order to make these arguments more comprehensible and like spur on concrete research that, you know, I'm pretty excited about. I'm pretty optimistic about the ability of humanity to like solve a problem once it's like laid out clearly in front of us. And so it feels like that's just a really big step.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I-, I interrupted you. I think you were going to go on to, a, to a second way you were hoping
1: to help. Yeah. And then uh, when it comes to thinking more about governance and the ways in which we can implement regulations. Again, I think the thing I want to do here is round out these high level concepts and arguments, things like we should all coordinate in order to prevent the deployment of dangerous systems and like trying to get really like specific concrete examples of ways that people can contribute, like especially people with technical backgrounds. So maybe yeah, I'll, I'll give a couple of examples of this. So I think one broad example is just doing research on chip level uh, verification mechanisms such that we can try and produce chips that can't be used for certain types of particularly risky training. And that might just be because we can like monitor them or like uh, we can verify that they've been doing a certain type of activity, like maybe a chip that like can verify that it's been inactive for the past couple of months and so it hasn't been used on a certain type of training run. Mm. Or, or that could involve sort of more restrictive mechanisms like uh, Nvidia has some restrictions on the way some of their GPUs can be used so that you need to pay extra in order to unlock the ability to run many of them in parallel. And so th- that's the type of like hardware level restriction that, you know, some people have been thinking about and like, obviously people at Nvidia and so on have been working on, but I think it would just be great to have more people thinking about how to do this so that that can feed into more concrete plans for regulation and governance of AI.
0: Wow. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that sort of chip stuff was was possible yeah
1: we we should probably do an episode on that
0: at some point if that's stuff that's that's really live i know so little about the hardware side of any of this i'm just like ah it's chips it's it's all chips just from my point of
1: view right uh it's also not my comparative advantage just in terms of my background isn't really hardware focused and so i don't want to make particular claims about what is and isn't possible like you know there are some mechanisms that are in place along these lines but also they can be circumvented and so it's kind of hard Mm -hmm. to say you know uh, make predictions about what would be effective at restraining particularly competent and motivated actors. Mm. But mm. it sure seems like a uh, set of research directions that I'd be excited about people looking into. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the second one I was going to mention is, is just like automated verification of certain properties of machine learning training runs. So mm. if I have, you know, if I'm trying to train an AI and Hopefully we'll have made some progress on figuring out like which types of trading runs or which types of architectures or algorithms are like most likely to produce, for example, deception and which like what mechanisms you need to put in place. Like how can we actually verify that this is something that's going on? One way could be for me to like show auditors the actual source code that I'm using for my training run. But, you know, that leaks all sorts of information. There are privacy concerns. Mm. And maybe it's just like hard to analyze that. Maybe there's just tens or hundreds of thousands of lines of code. And it's just really difficult for humans to look through that. And so it would be really great if we had better means of automatically verifying high level properties of certain training code. You know, things like how many parameters are being trained for how long using what types of algorithms and you know i think that there's there's been some work done in these directions but again i think it's the type of stuff where it's very unclear how well that sort of work would stand up to you know attempts to break it by powerful and motivated actors and so again it feels like really an open question like how far we can get uh, in terms of automatically verifying properties of these training runs and the resulting models so that's again a thing i'm pretty excited about people looking into especially people with more of a background in automated verification and programming language design and things along those lines
0: you're working on all of these things
1: (laughs) so i'm yeah so i think the thing i'm trying to do is as i said like build these bridges so like less specifically trying to scope it out myself and more like well here's what the governance people are saying would be useful for them Mm -hmm. like they want some ways of enforcing and monitoring treaties and like using my technical background here's some things that i think are like somewhat plausible and worth investigating. But like, really, I want to hand them over to the people who have like way more domain expertise and potentially serve as a bridge such that those people can say, well, actually, you know, what thing would be useful to have in these regulations? Like, which of these things should we prioritize? Questions like that.
0: Fantastic, yes. And, and all of this is happening kind of under the, under the OpenAI banner.
1: Yeah, so the governance team at OpenAI has been thinking about a bunch of these high-level questions and like working top down from, you know, what would it look like to be in a world where uh, nobody was going to build specific types of risky systems to like, okay, and then what progress can we concretely make today to move towards that?
0: Yeah. Are there any technical approaches to dealing with the specific kind of path to uh to misbehavior that you outlined in the the alignment problem from a deep learning perspective paper. Are, are there any I, I know people have had all kinds of different ideas for how you might shift how the training is occurring in order to prevent things from going in the in the wrong direction. Are you, are, do, you, do you like any of them?
1: Yeah. So two of the approaches that I'm most excited about are firstly this approach called debate, which is an attempt to get AIs to monitor and supervise each other by training them to criticize each other's behavior and like report, you know, ways in which another AI is misbehaving. Uh, And so, so far there have been like, uh, there was a paper on this from Jeffrey Irving originally that outlined a bunch of the theoretical considerations. Mostly there's been some more recent empirical work in this direction by the OpenAI alignment team. There's a paper on AIs critiquing each other, which, you know, is starting to step towards AI's uh, you know, automating the process of giving high-level feedback, mm. which I think is pretty exciting. A- and so, I think just like broadly speaking, you know, it's hard to know how far this type of thing is going to scale because you know, eventually you're going to get into a regime where AIs are making arguments about each other's behavior, which <laughs> is just very hard for humans to follow. But yeah. it certainly seems like something that we want to push as far as we can. And then, yeah, the the second thing that I'm just very excited about is you know, progress and interpretability because it just feels like the classic regime of, you know, rewarding agents for behaving well, and then just continually training them based on their behavior alone without really understanding what's going on internally is just like not a great regime to be in. And so anything we can do to move towards a more systematic scientific understanding of, oh, when we give rewards in this way, here's the types of mechanisms that change within the neural networks. Here's like the types of ways that their representations shift, and here's how those representations correspond to these high-level concepts. Like, I'm pretty excited yeah. about that. A lot of that work is being uh, done by Chris Ola and his team at Anthropic, and then yeah. an increasingly wide range of people. Like, for example, the people behind the Eiffel Tower paper that I mentioned a while back.
0: Yeah. So so the debate and the interpretability stuff, uh, the, the AI safety space is opinion is very fractured on, on what, what strategies are promising, which ones aren't. And I know that both of those have their critics of people who think that, there's just no way that either of these methods is going to yeah, going to pan out unfortunately i i i don't know it well enough to know exactly what what criticisms they would they would actually mount uh but yeah what what would you say to a skeptic who's saying this interpretability stuff is never actually gonna work this is this is crazy talk
1: uh yeah i, I think my general response is just oh, it's hard to predict science right like it's it's mm. really difficult to know you know what clever and motivated researchers can manage to do given you know access to these big models. And there are all sorts of surprising breakthroughs that happen across the field all over the place. So I think, yeah, I I think there's some, it does seem you know, important to have some debate about like how promising we think these approaches are at a high level to like help inform people who want to work in the field as to like which agendas they should focus on and things like that. But I think it's plausible that we're taking this too far and just actually, we, we just need to like, sit down and like really get as much empirical work as we can done until we hit the wall and then like keep reevaluating. And that just seems to be the way that, you know, most progress in science has happened throughout history. And so, yeah, I'm maybe, I'd maybe have more opinions if there were like some concrete trade-off that was involved, like, you know, should we allocate resources here or there? But mostly I think people who, who see something exciting in a given research agenda, and I think that they can contribute should choose mainly on that basis rather than on these like very high level considerations about whether the whole line of thinking about understanding ai systems is going to work out or not
0: yeah you wrote this post on uh, the AI Alignment Forum uh, a little while ago uh, called uh, Some Conceptual Alignment uh, Research Projects, which I guess was kind of a uh, call cool to arms um, for people to investigate a whole lot of uh, quite specific questions. Yeah, are, are there any that you'd like to, to highlight? And I suppose uh, there, there, it was quite a long list, so, so people could go and check out the rest of them if, uh, if people are keen to, to, to find an article to work on or a specific question to investigate.
1: The main ones I want to highlight are the ones related to the definition of goals that I've been talking about in this podcast, which is, you know, goals are internal representations within a neural network of outcomes in the real world. And I think one you know important aspect of this definition is that we don't necessarily know which networks have goals or don't. So for example, if you take something like GPT-3, when it gives an answer, how far ahead is it thinking? Like, is it thinking about what, what's going to happen in the next paragraph? Is it planning out all sorts of long-winded responses? Or is it just thinking like a couple of words ahead? Like, we don't really know at this point. So like, I think there's some possible things that GPT-3 could be doing that would fit the definition of goals that I gave here. Maybe not like being a central example of goals, because it still probably wouldn't be thinking about how its actions affect the world in a very sophisticated way, but still like getting closer to it than maybe any other system has in the past. And that's just, you know, an open empirical question. I can imagine a bunch of research being done, especially interpretability research, to try and hone in on that type of question and even to just like pin down more precisely what that would even mean. Like, so yeah, there's some mix of like understanding these definitions and concepts better and then like tying them to empirical, like to existing systems that I'm generally very excited about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Is there? Uh, I guess we've been talking about things that, that you think are good. Uh, is, is there any work that you think is overrated, uh, at least by the people doing it, that, you, that you're willing to tell us? It's always a little bit edgier to, to, to say that things, uh, things are overstated. But
1: Yeah. So I do think that none of the existing books on the alignment problem, including Bostrom's Superintelligence, uh, Russell's Human Compatible, and then Brian Christian's The Alignment Problem, none of them really get at the key thing that i care about and which i've been trying mm. to convey in the paper that we've been discussing and that, that's for a range of different reasons like superintelligence doesn't really focus on like modern machine learning and deep learning which uh you know is understandable given when it was written but feels like it dates it today i think human compatible i think the framing resonates with some people but the way that russell frames his solution to the problem or his like overarching agenda to solve the problem just like really doesn't resonate with me it feels like uh, it relies on a bunch of assumptions that aren't really made as clear as they should be in particular assumptions about uh for example like how well are we going to understand the systems that end up being generally intelligent and i think like you know uh, russell's paradigm for solving the problem works if you think that we're going to make a whole bunch of progress on cognitive science and neuroscience and we're going to like be building ais that build on that knowledge in like some quite specific ways mm. but in a regime where like that we're currently in, which is where you know taking very large black box systems and just throwing a whole bunch of compute at them, it, it doesn't really feel like the right type of approach. So, so that's something that I think is he's overclaiming, uh, or at least not you know not identifying his assumptions as clearly as he should be doing.
0: Mm. And what were you saying about um, Brian Christian's book, the the alignment problem? Uh, I guess I guess that that wasn't setting out a, 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 a an approach to to solve the problem. It was more just yeah. trying to explain the problem well.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a pretty great book, and it just mostly doesn't deal with the alignment problem as it might manifest in the regime of human level and super intelligent AIs. Mm. And I think that's you know a, a very reasonable thing to do because uh, because that's much more speculative and much more difficult to discuss. And I, I think he covers very well uh, the alignment problem. As it exists in systems today, but you know the thing I'm concerned about, uh, or the thing I'm most concerned about, is the manifestation of the alignment problem in these like highly advanced systems. And so I think the book just has relatively less to say about that. Yeah.
0: Okay. That, that kind of wraps up our solutions section. I, I suppose, um, as, as always, just we could keep on talking about this stuff, this stuff forever, mm-hmm. but uh, but we can only take up uh, so much of your time, and I suppose only so much of a uh, listener's time on, on any one particular episode. Um. As, as we head towards the end, let's talk a bit about how you managed to get into all of this in the first place. Um, well, it's, it's intrinsically interesting; uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting path, and mm-hmm. plenty of listeners, I imagine, uh, are interested in making a career shift either into into AI or some other some other thing that they have not yet engaged with. Um, what were the most important inflection points in in your career so far, in in your mind?
1: So I guess first reading about the alignment problem when I was in high school, actually, on Less Wrong, uh, that laid a bunch of seeds, which I didn't really do anything about for the next few years. But when I ended up going to undergrad at Oxford, I got involved with effective altruism and then uh, slowly meandered my way towards this career. Mm. In hindsight, it took me way longer than it should have, given mm. like my beliefs and interests.
0: Yeah. When were you first reading about it?
1: Uh, this was in 2010, maybe. 2010. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So so you were reading
0: about it in general for for, for quite a number of years before you yep. were seriously thinking about taking any action. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that is an unfortunate delay, although I suppose it's um, the alternative thing is to end up getting like bounced around all the time by things that you end up reading, constantly changing changing plans, uh, having a bit too, yeah, being a bit too volatile, which, which I've also seen people do and <laughs> can also be a, be a mode of failure.
1: Right. I, I think at the time I was just too conformist mm. and also, you know, hadn't really been tracking progress in AI, which... I think, mm. uh, you know, at the time was still confined to the discipline uh, and the academic field way more than it currently is, where like everything's being released to a lot of media attention and so on. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, it, it took me a little while to like get out of that rut. And I think, you know, there are some friends from my time studying in the UK who are really helpful with that.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, how long did it take you to, to start seriously contemplating doing something?
1: So I was sort of learning about... AI all the way through undergrad. And then I think another inflection point was just during my master's where I was Mm. basically, yeah, focusing on machine learning, like engaging with some of the cutting edge research and felt like that was a big shift from, you know, being in the mindset of consuming knowledge to the mindset of like trying to produce knowledge, even that Mm. if that knowledge was just, you know, summaries of the latest papers and like trying to puzzle my way around uh, what was actually going on with these systems. So yeah, that, that felt like a big shift. I think in hindsight, again, that that could have happened in undergrad. There was no real reason why it had to be in my masters that I shifted into actually engaging with cutting edge research. But but yeah, especially in the UK, I think people tend to start doing research a little bit later. In the US, like it's fairly common for people to get research internships, maybe even in their, in their like first or second year of undergrad. Uh, mm. Whereas in the UK, people are a bit like often save it until their masters. Uh, So that's just one thing that people, especially like in the UK and other countries, should keep in mind that there are often a bunch of research opportunities earlier on than you might expect. Yeah. So uh, what were some of the first steps that you took and maybe what pushed you over the edge? Uh, So the steps I took, you know, I just started reading papers, trying to summarize them, trying to figure out what I thought of them and where they could be improved and things like that uh you know implementing some papers and implementing some projects as part of my masters and then the the two things that shifted me into working on this full time were an internship at the future of humanity institute and then a job offer at deepmind on the alignment team there mm. and yeah so i joined deepmind straight after my masters or like after the internship and yeah spent 2 years there total where like the first year was you know just getting up to speed and doing a bunch of engineering, mostly. But then the second year was really trying to focus on understanding the problem a bit better. And like the lines of work that I've been talking about today and have been working on throughout the last couple of years. Yeah.
0: What made you leave DeepMind and go and start the PhD?
1: So I think I I was officially a research engineer at DeepMind. And the type of work that I was thinking about, and the type of work that I've been talking about here are like, you know, less engineering work. And, you know, I think it seems possible that I could have sort of found a place for it at DeepMind, but it wasn't really a central example of the thing that I'd been hired to do. Mm. And it felt like I could do a bunch of that thinking as part of the PhD with a bunch more, like, time and freedom and so on, Uh, which turned out to be, like, true in some ways. And then, of course, you... You face trade-offs by, you know, not being at the cutting edge of the field anymore. And so, mm. uh, you know, not having access to the biggest models and not really hearing a bunch of the discussions that are going on inside these top AI labs. Mm. So, you know, I, I think the PhD, it would have been a reasonable choice to finish the PhD. But when the offer from OpenAI came along, I think it's just like, it was significantly better for me personally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So hold on, but you started the PhD. What was the main motivation there? Was that kind of you wanted credentials in order to further your career, or you thought like it was really important to learn this stuff that you could only learn when you when you had time to study in depth?
1: I think it was. I wanted to spend time thinking about these questions, and I thought, well, I may as well get a PhD out of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Especially because PhDs in the UK, they're, they're very short. They can be three years compared with, you know, five or six years in mm-hmm. the US. And you can basically just dive straight into your research project. So, and, and like getting a bunch of uh, mentorship from people who are like, in, in my case, who were mostly thinking about philosophy of science and like sort of less AI knowledge, but like very careful thinkers. So it, it felt like a good opportunity for me at the time.
0: Yeah. Do you think it was a reasonable decision in, in retrospect?
1: Yeah, I I think so. And I think, you know, a lot of the time you get most of the value out of, you know, the first year or so of a given thing. And so, you know, I think I got a bunch of value out of trying to like lead my own research and like be more careful in how I approached a bunch of like thorny conceptual problems and so on from the mm-hmm. PhD in a way where, you know, probably there would have been diminishing returns from staying for the second and third and potentially fourth years. So in hindsight, I'm like reasonably happy with how how that turned out. Although, you know, there's a type of energy and like pace of progress that happens over in california Mm. which uh you know is always good to get access to earlier on maybe
0: okay so what was the situation when you decided to to bounce from the phd after a year or a year or so you're thinking i've been here for a year i've learned a bit of what i can from this and Mm -hmm. and i guess you had a job offer from a place which was kind of the sort of place that you would want to go when you finish the phd anyway exactly I see. Yeah. And you're like, well, okay, well why would I want to stick around for another two or three years uh, when, when I can just go do it right away. Um, yep. Yeah. Do, do you think in general, too many people stick it out in PhDs that aren't serving them?
1: Yeah. It's hard to say because, you know, the base rate of dropping out of PhDs is pretty high. So it's mm. hard to make a strong judgment either way. I, I do think that the credential of a PhD is just becoming less and less important in machine learning in particular because, you know, there's just a massive talent shortage. And so places like OpenAI and Anthropic Mm. in particular are very open to having, you know, research leads or even like, you know, heads of big teams who just don't have PhDs or even undergrad degrees sometimes. So Mm. I I think the field is like pretty meritocratic in that sense. And so there are a lot of opportunities out there for people. Uh, So yeah, maybe in the specific domain, it does seem like, people are plausibly sticking to PhDs longer than they should. But that's not a like, particularly strong opinion.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not uncommon among people I know that someone gets a couple of years into their PhD and by that stage, they are qualified for the role that ultimately they want to get when they graduate. And so if yep. they, could, they could go and do it, but then they feel like they'll be wasting all of the stuff that they've done so far to not stick around for mm. another year or two and potentially go through the what's kind of the the slog maybe at the, at, the, at the difficult end of a phd when you actually have to put it all together and and get over the line i suppose yeah maybe you didn't face a very difficult decision with this one because it seems like a phd is just not such an important credential not such a such a key issue in 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 machine learning uh, and perhaps mm. people, people face a somewhat more challenging decision when maybe in the long run, they're not sure whether they might need the PhD because they're in an area where it, where it gets you greater kudos.
1: Right. Yeah. So so I think, yeah, my, my situation was unusual in a bunch of ways, including the fact that I was doing this sort of more philosophical work on like mm. the philosophy of machine learning and these like high level questions there that it feels like that's a pretty unusual path. And it's, yeah, a little hard to infer generalizable lessons.
0: Yeah, totally. Are there any mistakes though that you've made that you think could be instructive for uh for, for some listeners potentially?
1: Right. So being too conformist especially like during undergrad that made me slower to focus on things that I already agreed were important problems. Yeah. I think maybe just assuming like not focusing enough on just like continually learning about the cutting edge of the field, just thinking that okay great like I'm working like my day-to-day is as an engineer or my day-to-day is thinking about these governance stuff and I can spend less time on like really deeply trying to understand a new thing that came out like obviously the things that just came out like yesterday it's hard to tell which ones have staying power which ones are going to last but I think just focusing on continually learning seems like a pretty good heuristic that you know it's easy to just get a little bit lazy and then not get around to not get around to that.
0: So, I mean, you know, each of us only has so much time to kind of stay abreast of things that are going on, uh, both both in our field and in the in the world as a whole. Just just staying generally generally informed. Why, why do you think that you're kind of undervaluing the what, what what you get out of just keeping abreast of new technical results?
1: I think in this field in particular, people get into alignment because they're paying attention to these high level abstract arguments Mm. and so we're selecting for people who have a certain tendency to focus on this particular style of thinking and then end up having a bias towards you know being a bit less interested in okay but actually how did that latest result how did that work like how did they make that happen yeah so I, i think that's my guess that people underrate the extent to which deep technical familiarity is actually going to have sort of surprising or non-obvious returns by like sparking insights or reframing the way you see a certain phenomenon.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Is there anything else uh, you want to want to say about your career that, that might help steer, steer people in the, in the right direction or should we, should we push on?
1: I think personally, I've been very curiosity oriented and uh, that's paid off pretty well for me. You know, especially when you're younger, um, it seems like trying to coerce yourself into doing things that you're not interested in is like a tricky prospect and you know maybe it pays off for people who are more conscientious than i am but i do think that where possible if you can find some pathway to just being really excited and obsessed by a research direction that's the thing that's most likely to have really strong payoffs down the line yeah and it's, it's hard to say Like, obviously, in some sense, I'm very lucky because I find the stuff I'm doing, like, really fascinating while also thinking it's very important. And this feels like not a coincidence. I find it fascinating partly because it plays into such big picture issues that Mm. are of such potential significance. But, yeah, I I do think people should spend more time trying to find ways in which they can, like, hook the thing into their brain so that it's, like, feels less like forcing themselves to study it and more just like, oh, yeah, this is what... I want to spend my time thinking about in general.
0: Yeah. Okay, yeah, we're almost out of time. Uh, but one of the non-AI blog posts you've written, which I uh, really enjoyed uh, reading reading this week when I was prepping for the conversation, uh, is called Characterizing Utopia. Can you tell everyone, yeah, what, what, what challenge with utopias were you trying to address uh, in, in, in writing that?
1: So it seems like people have kind of branched off in two directions when thinking about utopias. One of them is the sort of transhumanist direction. Like we're going to have all of this amazing technology, we're going to enhance ourselves radically, like life will be unrecognizable. And then the other direction is this like very communitarian approach, like utopias like Island by Huxley or Walden 2 by Skinner, where they're really focusing on the ways that people relate to each other and the ways in which fundamental human relationships are reshaped. Mm -hmm. And it just feels to me like, actually, why not both, right? Like probably the world is going to be dramatically changed by technology, which also allows us to like have better interpersonal relationships and like have deeper connections with other people, which is like the stuff that, you know, fundamentally most people care about most deeply, the relationships with others. And so Mm. one of the things I was trying to do here is just see, well, can I actually describe a utopia in which like, sure, we have like all this advanced technology, but like, that's not actually the main thing for people. The main thing is that like it allows them to live like richer, more fulfilling lives in a like social and relational context. And you know, I, I I threw out a bunch of ideas and haven't really managed to stitch them together into a cohesive picture. But I think this is the type of thing that I think people should be thinking about more. Just being able to actually interact with each other and have technology facilitate the things that are most meaningful in our lives, rather than just picturing either relationships without technology or technology without relationships.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so, yes, some of the shifts that you envisaged uh, wouldn't be super surprising. Like uh, we could reduce the amount that people experience physical pain and uh, we we could make people, you know, be be a lot more energetic and a a lot more cheerful. But you had a section called contentious changes. Uh, Yeah. What what are some of the contentious changes that you, or possible changes that you envisaged in, in a utopia?
1: So one of the contentious changes here is just to do with, individualism and like how much more of it or less of it we have in the future than we have today because I guess we've been on this trend towards you know like much more individualistic societies uh where like there are fewer constraints on what people do the externally imposed by society and I could kind of see this trend continuing but I could also see it you're know, going in the opposite direction like you know maybe for example in a digital future we'll be able to make you know many copies of ourselves and so this whole like concept of my personal identity starts to shift a little bit. And maybe I start Mm. to think of myself as like not just like one individual, but like a whole group of individuals or like this like larger entity. And in general, it feels like, you know, being part of a larger entity is like really meaningful to people and really shapes a lot of people's lives, like whether that's religion, whether that's communities, families, things like that. And the problem historically has just been that you don't get to choose it. You just have to like get pushed into this entity that maybe isn't looking out for your best interests. And so yeah, it feels interesting to me to wonder like if we can in fact design these larger entities or larger superorganisms that are really actually good for the individuals inside as well as providing this more cohesive structure for them like is that actually something we want would i like be willing to lose my individuality if i were part of this group of people who were for example reading each other's minds or just like having much less privacy than we have today if that was set up in such a way that I found it really like, fulfilling and satisfying. And I, I really don't know at all. Um, but yeah. it seems like the type of question that is really intriguing and provides a lot of scope for thinking about how technology could just change the ways in which we want to interact with each other.
0: Yeah. I'm just I'm so, I'm so inculcated into the individualist culture.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that we have yeah. That.
0: The idea just it slightly makes my skin crawl thinking about any of this stuff. But I mean, I think if you try to look objectively at what has caused human well-being throughout uh, throughout history, then it does seem like a somewhat less individualistic culture where people have deeper ties and commitments to one another. Maybe that is totally fine, and I've just I've just drunk the Kool Aid <laughs> thinking that being an atomized individual is so great.
1: If you know the book, The Weirdest People in the World, which describes the sort of like trend towards individualism and like uh, weaker societal ties, you know, I think the people in our circles are like the weirdest people of the weirdest people in the world. Where weirdest here means, um, you know, it's an acronym meaning like Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic, not just weird. And you know, so we're the weirdest people of the weirdest countries, and then you know, you're not a bad candidate for the weirdest person in the weirdest community in the weirdest <laughs> countries uh, that we currently have, Rob. So I, I'm not really too surprised. By- Definitely
0: out there on the tail.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a, a case where this comes up is
0: um, talking to people uh, who have grown up and and live in countries where it's totally normal to um, to continue to live with your parents uh, into into adulthood, mm-hmm. into your 20s and 30s, potentially even 40s, you know, and, and, until you get married. And I've I've asked a bunch of times, you know, do you, do you find this frustrating because... You know, I, I got on really uh, well with my parents. Uh, very happy with how they raised me. But the idea of having them up in my business, and I think for them, the idea of, the idea of me, me being in their business, uh, it's just it's a very, very, yeah. very unpleasant idea. We, we really want to have lots of our own space. But mostly I've actually just gotten back blank stares. We were like, why would that be a problem? I don't understand. Why, what, what's wrong with living yeah. with your family? It's great. Uh, and I, I mean, that was far more surprising than any other specific answer <laughs> that I could have gotten about how it was. Um, yeah, what, what, what are some other contentious changes uh, on the list if there's any others you'd like to highlight.
1: So this one's not on the list, but I feel pretty interested in just like how weird virtual reality could be. Because like right now, um, you know, we kind of imagine VR and like, you know, Meta is imagining VR as like, ah, you can wander around in these three-dimensional space that kind of looks like the real world. And there are some games that, you know, maybe have a little bit of time travel or like a little bit of four-dimensional stuff. And I'm just like, man, it seems like the sky is really the limit here. or Not even the sky, but like, you know, could we have like just totally different dimensions, totally different senses in virtual reality? And like, especially like if you're a kid just playing the latest VR games, I could totally imagine that you just grow up and you've been playing these like five-dimensional games for your entire childhood. And like now Mm. you just can think, you can like mentally rotate five-dimensional shapes and just like uh, you could do the types of mathematics that we currently can't even dream of Mm. is that a good thing again really feel very uncertain about whether i would i think i personally would love to have grown up like that because it's just like you know so intriguing to grow up learning very naturally about this like fundamentally alien mental Mm. possibilities but you know i can imagine that being pretty controversial as well but i just think that like there's just so much scope for like designing these weird and wonderful worlds that we've really like Barely explored even a fraction of the possibilities, let alone implemented them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Were there any other changes in there which you think wouldn't be found in many uh, imagined imagined
1: utopias, which which you think are kind of distinctive to your list? I think that people in science fiction have generally not been very creative with like imagining new social roles. So, uh, you know, we have all these archetypes of different personalities and different like gender roles, for example, and people people have just been pretty bad at designing their own. And, you know, I think that's somewhat understandable because, like, it's much easier to imagine new technologies than it is to rethink the fundamental ways in which humans interact with each other. But Mm. it seems to me that we could, in fact, just end up with people who have new norms or new, like, radically alien norms that are as basic and fundamental to them as, like, our most basic norms like the family norm, for example, or the friendship norm. Yeah. And it's just like, I can't really, I don't really have great examples of this to give because I don't think people have really been thinking about them that much. But like, for example, like the whole conception of romance, for example, you know, that feels like something that is pretty modern in the historical context. And like, mm. uh, if we imagine ourselves transported into a future where romance just looks totally fundamentally different mm. than it does today, I wouldn't be surprised but I would be end up very confused, and I like have no idea how to orient around that, so yeah i i'm I'd love to read more stories like that, and you know maybe we'll get the language models onto writing them soon and see what happens there
0: yeah uh well well, the blog is called Characterizing Utopia, and it's on your blog your blog which is titled thinking complete um there's there's, there's plenty more in there it was quite a long one, so if people enjoyed those uh the, the, those three they should go and go and read the whole thing um. One final question. Okay, so one, of, one of my favorite questions for, for uh, people at parties. What's your favorite thought experiment ever?
1: Yeah, I am a big fan of alternative history thought experiments. So, you know, it feels really intriguing to me to wonder, for example, like why did the Roman Empire not industrialize? Because, you know, they had a bunch of the technology, they had a bunch of the materials and so on. It's just like, what's the like smallest little push that you can imagine that would start them rolling down the slope towards like a fully industrial society? Mm. Uh And, you know, th- that's just like kind of fun to play around with. It- it's not very clear if we can ever have an actual answer to this, but it feels like these types of questions are, yeah, just like really fun to like try and figure out what's actually causing like how did we actually get so lucky or were we in fact lucky was it like really overdetermined that the world would end up in the current state that it is uh and then like going back even further like why did we even evolve the way that we did you know like we've got humans and we've got plants and like what's the smallest change that you could make that would end up with the biological world looking like totally different to how it currently does um one which i put out on twitter a while back actually was something like if all animals went extinct how long would it take for plants to evolve to start like chasing each other around because now there's mm. this new like uh niche in the ecosystem which is like carnivorous creatures and like
0: yeah. it
1: feels kind of crazy but also it only took it's not crazy than what's a already 100 million years right exactly um and it's just again it's it's not really the type of thing that we can like properly know the answer to anytime soon but i think it highlights just like how radically contingent a lot of the stuff could have been and like how little we know about the forces that actually led us to where we are today and so that's always like a fun thing i enjoy thinking about
0: yeah just, just turning back to the, to the roman one that there's some science fiction book about someone who's somehow accidentally sent back to roman times right and they have to figure out how to make mm. their how to make their way what, what's that one called
1: i don't know that one i think uh th- okay. there, there are a couple that are about what happens if the romans end up taking over the world mm. but uh, yeah i i'm nothing's coming to mind
0: okay well p- people have told me the science fiction book is good so we'll, we'll figure out what it is and we'll stick up a link to it in nice. the um in the, in the blog post associated uh, with the episode yeah one, one of my favorite thought experiments is is very well, very similar concept but it's um imagine that you were unexpectedly uh, sent back to back to you know 200 bc would you be able to convince people that you were from the future just based on that you can't bring anything you can't bring any artifacts like an iPhone or something, but would you just with your knowledge be able to convince them? I, I've heard people argue no, but I think the answer is just very clearly yes. Well, either you be you could persuade them either that you're from the future or you're from somewhere very weird <laughs> uh, where you've got knowledge that's, uh, that, that's far beyond what they what they have and very unexpected. But uh, I think I'll, I'll leave that as an exercise to the reader. <laughs> All right. Uh, my, my guest today has been uh, Richard No. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Richard.
1: Thanks for having me, Rob. Love the discussion.
0: As always, we list a range of jobs related to all things to do with positively shaping the development of AI on our job board at jobs.80,000hours.org. There's about 100 of them up there at the moment. Before we go, uh, Richard designed this course called AGI Safety Fundamentals. And after the episode, he wanted to add a few remarks uh, to tell you all about it in case some of you might like to
1: sign up. Here's Richard. AGI Safety Fundamentals is a course I designed with the goal of helping people learn about the alignment problem, and some of the research directions which are aiming to solve it. It's an eight-week course, and each week you have a couple of hours of readings and then a small group meeting with four or five other participants and a facilitator who have a discussion about the readings and the ideas that came up and any confusions that people had. It's intended for a pretty wide range of audiences, so ideally people would have some background in a technical subject like computer science or mathematics, but you don't need any machine learning background. We've had people who are just uh, totally new to machine learning. We've also had people who are professors in machine learning and who mainly want to understand, you know, what's going on with the field of alignment. And we stream those participants into different groups depending on their level of expertise and how familiar they are with the problem overall. We're running the next round of that in February this coming year. And so if you want to apply for that, um, which I recommend as a way to learn more about the alignment problem, Uh, the deadline is the 5th of January. And you just want to go to agisafetyfundamentals.com for that. We've also got two other courses which we run alongside that. One is the AI Governance Fundamentals course, which is a bit less technical and a bit more focused on the political and governance problems involved with the development of advanced AI. And then the other one is the Alignment 201 course for people who have already taken the Alignment Fundamentals course. Um, those ones aren't being run quite yet, uh, but you can go up to the website and find the curricula for each of those and work through it yourself or with a small group of others if you want to do so.
0: Okay, uh, Rob again here. Thanks for that, Richard. One final announcement before we go is that Peter Hartree, who used to work at 80,000 Hours, has recently launched a new podcast feed that features human-read audio versions of popular or particularly significant posts from the Effective Altruism Forum, uh, which might naturally be of interest to some regular listeners to this show. If you want to search for that and subscribe, the name of the feed is EA Forum Podcast, and then all audio in brackets. And naturally, I imagine you can find it in any podcasting app. All right, the 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Milo Maguire and Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. And now, for the first time, I can also add that our theme song is La Vita Air e Bella by Jazz Enough. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.